0: was down from the front yard so um
1: we installed you know rock under there under where that balcony deck thing was and around basically the front of the backyard with a big patio section at the bottom of the stairs and then on the other side from the patio section was the raised beds that they already had but we basically just like reinstalled them as part of the landscape design Okay. Yeah, so oh. I mean, you can if you get good at just regular landscape design, you can incorporate that in because you're looking at gardening and stuff. That's something I think would be really cool and unique because a, a landscape company they're just going to be like, "Well, let's install rock and put shrubs in and that kind of thing." Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So That's, they're they're marketing to people who want low maintenance a lot of times. Yeah. Exactly.
2: So I just drew out uh, like some general designs for this. A uh, girl. I just did her yard work this past weekend. Um, you know, I haven't specified what exactly, which plants and stuff. Just kind of got a, a general bones together for an idea. Cause she's got a, a pretty good sized lot um, that's just clearly not been taken care of uh, mm-hmm. for a long time. I, I mowed it on Sunday and it took almost four hours. And it's only like it's less than half an acre. Um, it was all like, more than knee-high. And it, like, I mean, it's just clearly not been touched in maybe a year or more. Um, And so it's, like, a random bush here, and, like, maybe some wildflowers that have just happened to come up because the seeds decided to germinate finally or whatever, so it's just kind of everything everywhere but i got her some designs put together and i got to get with her and see like what her goals actually are with it because i know she's trying to turn it into a rental property soon so it may just be low maintenance curb appeal yeah type you stuff. might going, yep yep so it's just yep. it's just figuring out what they actually want because right now i'm just trying to stack some money yeah um, and then eventually well, i'll be able to pivot into doing what i really really want to do
1: Yeah, and even something like that so is this is that a front yard or a backyard both both Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, because the way I'm looking at it is I'm thinking, okay, well, if it's a rental property, you can literally just be like, look, I will clear this and then uh, the next weekend I will um, like do whatever you need to do to basically um, like fresh till it and install new grass seeds. So it's all uniform grass and then be Mm -hmm. like, and on top of that, we can write a contract and I will be your Mo guy for the next year and yep. you can decide to renew later. And then that way that's like that's solid income right there. And it's a rental. So like they do that all the time. Like my neighbors here have a, they have a irrigation installed. They've got r- the really nice uh, fescue and um, m- a moker that comes through every week.
2: Mm, okay. And
1: you know, that's, I mean, that's classic right there. That that's just easy money.
2: Yeah. I know that uh, if you know, Tim cook, who does the he does expert counsel segments for
1: yeah, the Smell yeah podcast?
2: Uh, what he, was this like, thing so, again? It's all like handyman business.
1: Handyman guy. Yeah, that's right. Okay.
2: Yeah. So hit a lot of his. I think continuing a lot of his like most steady income is uh, corporate contracts like that because they're 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 straightforward and simple. You know, mm-hmm. like it's going to be cookie cutter. Yep. Uh, so it's going to be pretty. You know, there's no guesswork in it. Um, But there's this one couple that I'm working for. Um, They've been at this property for 37 years and it's just like one of the most gorgeous properties I've ever seen. Um, They're maybe two thirds of an acre, but there is not a blade of grass to cut on any of it. They've like installed gardens of some variety or other everywhere on their entire property. And it's, it's not like, food producing or anything like that it's like pretty much low maintenance stuff that's just like a beautiful mm-hmm. work of art everywhere it's like rock gardens here and then there's like a an art studio in the back and a little like uh sort of like a pergola type thing in front that they've got some sort of vine growing over that's like got stone benches all in it for like a hangout spot and there's a spot nice. that's clearly like a meditation area in an area right. for hammocks and stuff, it's just so gorgeous that I'm just there like helping them maintain it because they're older and it's you know, they mm-hmm. they see the trees there and they're like, all right, this is the shape they're at currently. This is kind of what I'm feeling it should be. And I'm like, all right, cool, we can make that happen. And it I mean it's just a blessing to to be able to spend time in that place. It's so gorgeous. Nice. Yeah. And okay. they love Whoa. me already.
1: <laughs> That's great. That's good. <laughs> Build that relationship. And I mean your older customers are gonna be the ones that are going to be huge word of mouth customers for you, like advertisement.
2: Yep, exactly. Yep.
1: So, uh... Hello Jake, how's it going, Jake? What's up, guys? <laughs> How you doing? Just
2: listening to you, Jibber jabber.
0: Yes, Take sir. Uh, I, don't, so I, I don't know. I might be
3: a bit far from the mic. Oh, I, uh, made my, my, I made my. I may need to switch it. Hang on a second.
0: Yeah, sometimes I was sometimes you know, it on,
3: screws up the uh, the thing. Hang on.
1: You're on the default,
0: whatever. Yep. Hang on. There you go. How's that? Oh, beautiful perfection, buttery smooth.
3: Yeah. All right. Cool. I don't know why it does that. Like it just Mm. doesn't switch. It just will. I mean, I guess I don't really use it that often. But it's kind of a weird. I don't know. Just switches weirdly. I I don't know why I'm interested in it because it's like
0: pretty irrelevant. Also, I don't know. It's one of those things where.
3: like I, I don't know why I'm into American politics because <laughs> it's irrelevant, but I'm really, really interested in the Canadian election for some reason. Oh, jeez, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, and the results are coming in. Like I don't really. I have it's it's more of like curiosity to me because uh, I started watching this guy on YouTube who does he's I'm putting air quotes around it. He's a conservative Canadian, <laughs> um, but he's he's a gay guy from BC who's a conservative Canadian and I wouldn't really say he's conservative, at least not in the American sense or the oh, United, no. <laughs> United States sense, but he's, he's very pro middle-class, very pro consumer culture. Uh, like, you know, like the eighties, nineties consumer culture, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I find he's just very interesting. He's also a smart guy, uh, but, uh, he's, he does these videos where he covers their party and you know, they have a parliamentary system. So it's different mm-hmm. than here. And it's just kind of interesting the way that that whole thing works. And then uh, I was sort of loosely following it. And then Malice had on Maxime Bernier, who is the PPC head honcho. And yep. um, and he, like, I, I'm curious to see. So they sort of broadened-polled him a little bit because all of the polls were showing that, that his party was actually polling better than the Greens. But every time they would show like who's in the lead, it would always be everybody, including the Greens, and not the PPC. Uh, Which so it was like wow, one of where they were just incredible. like, yeah, it was very much like that. It's where they would be like, they'd be like, in first place for the Liberals, in second place the Conservatives, in third place the NDP, and then you know a block uh, Quebec, or I think it's called Bloc Quebec or whatever, the French Nationalist Party. There they always have a huge showing for just Quebec. But um mm-hmm. and then they would skip the PPC and just go straight to the Greens. <laughs> so it was, it was very much like that that famous Jon Stewart moment where like mm-hmm. they're like, in first place this guy, in second place, this guy, and, and in fourth place this guy He goes, in fourth behind who? Yeah. Like, like where they, they just don't mention don't it. It, it. So like right. that's kind of been interesting to me. I don't think they'll pick up a seat because from my understanding of the way it works is you may be polling very well, and this may be why they don't show it in the news. You may be polling very well, but if you don't have a, a concentrated area of support, it's very unlikely that you're going to succeed in any way because right. of the way that it works.
1: Well, so, that's, that's how Ron Paul worked, too, is he had his very specific district that knew him and voted for him over, well yeah. above anyone else. And right. I mean, that. yeah, it's it's very the same thing.
3: I guess that's kind of so. Like the PPC is their sort of ultra conservative party, but also not really conservative. It's more nationalistic, or like I don't, I don't
1: know. It's 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 a weird. It's difference it's, between national socialists and global socialists.
3: Yeah,
2: Bernie like, when he talks yeah, almost of. sounds like a libertarian. Like he's he's ninety percent of the way is. there. Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. Well, and and for, and I I think he's read you know Mises and Hayek and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, he
2: talks he talks Rothbard yeah. too in some of the interviews.
3: Or oh, does he? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty. He's it, it's it's interesting. One of the reasons why I think it's so interesting is this guy's YouTube channel has so many things where he kind of explains so much of the history of Canada and why. In his opinion, he's like it's basically just America. Like it's it's the same thing. He goes, everybody. Ever, he's like everybody who thinks that they're that Canada's this total like unicorn, special and different or whatever. He goes, that's government propaganda. It's not true. We're we're identical in like ninety nine percent of all ways, except for the French Canadians. He says they're
1: weird. Right? But, yeah. It's just they that, that they originated from France more than England.
3: Yeah, but he, <laughs> yeah. so he and he goes through and he goes everything that's different about Canada the government has imposed to make us different from America because the entire history of of Canada oh, wow. is just them trying to not be America. And <laughs> wow. uh, from the government level. Yeah. From the government level. Yeah. Yeah. Cause and like, and he says like, ton, if you go look, look back at their old political cartoons, like all of them are about like the threat of the Americans and like how they're going, to, <laughs> how, how, how their culture is going to come in and like dominate Canadians and I mean, true. Wow, this is so. <laughs> Everybody's got a southern border. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, is, it is really funny to to do, to see. I was, It's just a really like since I've kind of like now know a little bit more about it. I'm like, oh, this is actually a lot more interesting. I, I never even really thought about Canada, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and uh, and well, and actually, he brings that up in some of his videos. He goes, he goes. I know for all my American listeners, you guys never really even think about us. And he goes, but. No, all we ever think about is you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's a meme in uh, there somewhere like a, yeah. Oh, yeah. a broken up
2: couple. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think like I some, think so. some pop breakup song in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, what's everybody? What, what do we got today? I kind of I, I all I had thought about was like, oh, I'm, I read more of this book. So.
3: Uh, I've read uh, maybe a quarter of against the Green, so I am happy to talk a little bit about that. I think that's okay. kind of interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, the conversation can kind of wander where it's going to wander. I I have these I have very ups and downs these last couple of weeks about like where the world is, and I'm, I'm at this point I'm leaning toward we're going to be forced into intentional communities. Very, 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 very quickly—like way more quickly Mm -hmm. than, like, I, like, every week. I think it's sooner than, Mm -hmm. than, like, I, like, if when we first started doing these, I think I was predicting five or ten years or something. And then I was like, well, probably about five years. And then I think maybe a couple weeks ago, I was like, yeah, it'll probably be you know two and a half, three years. Now I'm like, it could be next month that like everything's done,
1: right? Damn. well and and this is why like hanging out with um our friend Carr last weekend i th- was nice because he was constantly like no like there, there's a list of all of these states that are kind of pushing back a little bit and yeah so that might keep keep that at bay for at least another year but we'll see i mean we we can see with the the election itself like uh there's still um voter I, I down I, Georgia I, I, is working on getting you know Access to the ballots from the 2020 election, and you know, so that's yeah. still in the process. But we still have Biden for president, so it's just like, well, I don't know. Well, i mean,
3: but this is like my thing about this is that I don't even know that the United States will make it to 2022. Oh, yeah, man. like it's, no, I,
1: I, 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 yeah. There's, I, I, yeah, well, I, I don't,
3: I don't know. Do you guys feel? Uh, do you guys ever follow? Uh, do you, or are you following the uh, China Evergrande situation?
1: I haven't heard of it. Okay. No. So,
3: so they basically, their version of Lehman Brothers is going bankrupt. Currently. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay. So, okay. and it's, but it's different than Lehman Brothers because at least when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, there were actual physical properties that were, would mm-hmm. be repossessed and liquidated and resold. Evergrande, like, pre sold apartments in buildings oh that are God. never going to
1: be complete. And, oh, someone was telling me about this. Was that you last weekend telling me about?
3: They're, uh, they're building
1: entire towns that are just halfway built, and then they're deciding, oh, oh like, well, it, that, yeah, a more visceral. It's a more visceral boom bust because they they are literally building the buildings and then realizing, oh, no one's going to buy this, and they're having to just stop.
3: Yeah, well, no it's, not, it's not. It's not only that they. It's, yeah, well, that that is part of it. Like Evergrande has, there's, like, they sold like 1.5 million family units, and they wow. will, and they'll never finish those. And and those people partially paid for them already. So, it, wow. So it's different. It's a, it's different than and
1: like individuals just, were buying these houses from them.
3: Yes. Whoa. Before they're finished, and they're never going to be finished. Um, uh, and it's it's like it's a really bizarre situation. It's like it's like a too big to fail thing, but it was already pushed. It, this they should have collapsed in January. And it was pushed off to give them time to like sell assets, but they've been downgraded so many times they haven't been able to basically get their footing in order to liquidate anything to kind of cover the situation. And then they've also sold these uh, credit default swaps to every single major bank in China. Uh huh. And so when I mean this is it's it's so extremely similar to Lehman Brothers in two thousand eight, but like. Huge, like, I don't know if it's the same number of dollars, it may actually be less dollars, but it's like so much more integrated in the Chinese economy. Mm Uh, that this is this, and then so, but this is something that's kind of interesting. I don't know if you guys want to get into this, and it may, and I may not have a full enough understanding of this, but it's something I was thinking about while I was working today. Is so, if uh, so there's a couple things. One is China uses the yuan, that's their currency, right. So and there has been a lack of demand for yuan lately. But people still use it, and they use it internally. And if this kind of happens, and basically the yuan becomes worthless, then there's, and we can already see that this is something that's happening currently, is that dollar demand is going up, which is probably one of the reasons why inflation is not as bad as it should be, Uh huh. Uh, is that you have this sort of international dollar demand as dollars are replacing the yuan in a lot of places, and and a lot of it's too is Ch- the Chinese using it play in different places uh, where they are, uh, okay. where they were using yuan. Those places are no longer accepting yuan, is so it, now they're isn't using dollars. Hong Kong
1: like one hundred percent on the dollar.
3: Um, I think these the Hong Kong dollar, which is pegged to the dollar. Oh, okay, but I don't. I don't know. I'm not one hundred percent sure on that. But okay. um, so. If China no longer is using their currency and they, you know, switch to, I mean, ultimately it would be great if they would switch to crypto, but their country doesn't, their government doesn't like that. So, but their government does use dollars. So if their government goes, okay, well, we're going to use dollars. And now you have a billion people in a another country increase their demand for U.S. dollars. And then, in addition, you have the reverse repo market in the United States, which is basically pooling money out of the economy. You'll suddenly have a skyrocketing perceived value of the dollar because of how much demand there is for the dollar, and which would create a deflationary bust—not what we would expect to happen—because of how much they printed. Like the situation is so bizarre that. Somehow, they've been able to create all of this money. and yet the rest of the world is so much more screwed up than it should be that there could be a deflationary bust due to demand for a currency that is not stable but much more stable than the currency being used domestically in those countries, huh, which is just is just wild to think about that. And then, at the same time, the reverse repo markets in the United States, like bil- like billions of dollars are being pulled out of the out of circulation every month. So it's this it's just such a bizarre it's just a really bizarre situation. Like and yeah. But I guess on the on the bright side for I mean for it, first of all it's temporary. There's no way that the dollar survives uh right. what they've done. But right. well, it, to on, me on the bright this side, is- I would say relative right. yeah, the bright side, I would say the silver lining is people who believe in Bitcoin relative to the dollar during a deflationary bust if bitcoin loses a lot of value you can purchase more bitcoin with a stronger dollar in and that may actually set you up for more success further on so because i mean i don't know how much you guys pay attention to price of bitcoin like bitcoin was down eight percent today and i think a lot of it is I don't think a lot of it's because of dollar strength, other part of it probably is because the dollar did go up in value relative to a lot of currencies today. But I think I think one reason it was is that because of what's going on with uh, Evergrande, a lot of people are liquidating their crypto holdings in order to cover margin in foreign markets. Sure.
1: Yeah. No, I can see that. Um, I was just thinking like the, the way that I'm kind of looking at it is uh, – yeah, wow well, to go down. See, I well for one, I only look at uh my Bitcoin price. Like I check it all the time, but I don't actually think about it in terms of like USD price because I'll be like, yeah. Look, it's maybe on a week to week basis I could see like really caring about it, but like day to day, I just I'm kinda like, Well, you know, I, I'm not spending it right now anyway. So Yeah, well this actually right now but, on, on day over day it's down almost twelve percent right now, which but I mean yeah, and different I'm different I'm definitely seeing that, but I don't yeah. think I think in the grand scheme of things we're you know Um, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But what I was thinking, uh, in in bigger picture is that these countries are going to see what El Salvador did, um, and they're going to think, okay, I can either plug myself into the U.S. dollar and be subject to the U.S.'s monetary policy and be subject to basically U.S. economics, or I can say whatever crypto and hopefully Bitcoin because it's smart, um, I'm gonna pick pick Bitcoin and say this is the free market just figuring things out, and you know it's worth more. It's going to be you know more and more scarce over time, regardless of what the dollar does. And they're going to try to maintain their stability that way. So hopefully, see something that I wonder about is that these larger countries, China, Russia, Canada, um you know, I guess what we what we would call first world nations. um i think they've got this like rose colored glasses look at the u.s where like if if you know we have to go to the u.s dollar we will whereas i think it's the third world countries that are going to be coming first or i guess what they call second world countries would be coming first so el salvador a lot of like south america those are going to be coming online to bitcoin before some of these bigger nations that are you know still thinking in this like modern monetary theory idea. Um. Could, I, I think could classical be. economics yeah. is going to come come back from the point of view of these smaller countries who just you know, have had enough of living under that. I don't i I think it's it's possible that countries like you know, like China or even um you know England or whoever, uh, they're going to get on board with the u s. dollar before Bitcoin just because they have that sort of relationship with it that they don't have with this weird, you know, underground internet thing.
3: Well, I think that I think that's you know, in terms of governments, that's sort of the. I think I don't think that they either they. I don't want to say they're stupid because I think people miss uh misattribute stupidity to right. um, malice or maybe not even malice, but like extreme self-interest. So I right. don't. I think that like this is something that if you're heavily addicted to the power of controlling a currency or being able to uh, create new currency or get it for cheap, um, what's the, what's that effect called where like the the first person who gets it, it's worth more money to them.
1: Uh, the Cantillon effect.
3: Cantillon effect. So yep. like these larger central banks in other countries, like even if it's the Chinese central bank, they're going to have access to large amounts of dollars with the higher purchasing power uh, the same as like a large investment bank has that access uh, before the downline uh, of the normal people, and that's why you know Bitcoin is a true grassroots money. Mm-hmm. It's it will it will I think replace a lot of these old things, but not from any. I, I mean, just by the nature of what it is, not from the government itself. The government's not going to come in. I mean, like El Salvador, they did, but even in that case, it's a little bit different especially since like i would even i mean like el salvador's economy is smaller than large numbers of american corporations so like this is even in these smaller examples of these countries them switching over or even partially switching over in the case of el salvador um they're not a they're not fully switching over they're just trying for some sort of stabilization in the population so that because in countries like this, when your government's overthrown, everybody gets executed. So, um, I think these governments kind of go like, "Okay, look, we need some sort of stabilizing force," and right now, that's not—it's uh, not a sure thing. That's a dollar, but they also don't have; they're not used to the Cantillon effect being theirs. They are—they right. receive this stuff right. later, anyways. Whereas China, or even like Mexico, or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, everybody always makes fun of Mexico being poor, and, like, globally speaking, it's not. Um, it's, uh, it's just relative to the United States is poor. But in even these other cases, they still have access to the currency first with a higher purchase value than further on down the line. So I think that that's—I think— you know, uh, when Cliff was here at our uh, staying with us uh, down here in, in uh, DFW a couple months ago, he and I talked about this a little bit. I thought it was interesting that he kind of was arriving at the, sort of the same conclusion that I was—that that I really think that we're going to see deflation before we see inflation, which could be a blessing in a lot of ways, as it gives you an opportunity to prepare in a different way. Um, so. Like in a deflationary economy, you have the opportunity to purchase more stuff at a discount that wouldn't otherwise have been available to you. Uh, and then, but with the knowledge and expectation that it's going to flip at some point. And it's going to be, if you go through a deflationary bus first and then they realize the inflation, the inflation is going to be so much worse and so much faster once that is kind of realized because the money doesn't leave the doesn't leave circulation permanently in the reverse repo market. It just takes time to go back into circulation. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very interesting to me. I, and kind of like thinking about it, uh, I, I, like I'm going like, I had this like grand idea that we'll set up Childeberg town and then the rest of the world will kind of be going on as normal as we're preparing our stuff. And I'm kind of, and now I'm kind of going like, I don't, I don't even think the United States will be a country by 2022 or at least by the end of 2022. Yep. I uh, like it's, it's already, I mean, you guys saw that Sarah Silverman clip that was going around where she was, she like off the top yeah. of her head was like, Oh my God, I guess we should split up. Right. <laughs> and, it, and it, and it's funny. It's, it's like, haha funny to us. Cause it's something we talk about all the time. But when you start seeing kind of normal people, when this start, this thought starts entering their head, and I've I've been seeing this from like left wing family members for years now, where like slowly they're kind of going like, uh, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be in the same country. Like we just we just don't see eye to eye, and we're never going to see eye eye to eye. And I I it's going to be one of those things where, you know, it took a month after Gorbachev gave that speech for the Soviet Union to be gone. I mean, things were happening the three years leading up to that, but he gave the speech and a month later, it was not the Soviet Union anymore. It was 13 or 14 countries. Mm -hmm. And, and I I think it's going to be kind of one of those things where what we've seen the last two years in the United States, well, really even since, since Trump, um, these divisions have been getting worse and worse and it's kind of getting faster and faster. And also what they've done to the money, it's, I think it's just going to be one of those things that it's going to be maybe New Hampshire, like, you know, they put that bill in to, um, put a referendum up for secession for their state. I think it's going to be something like that, that it just kind of enters into the public consciousness and becomes acceptable. And then that's it. And, and then we're not, you know, we're in Gomez or the Republic of Texas or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah. That, that's part of my impetus for being like, okay, um, once, once I get things, you know, back to normal, like I just got all that car work done, which everyone who's listening to this knows. Um, once I get that gone, like I am moving to Texas because I'm very aware that this is going to happen. Like, if you know, one of the, I think one of the first things that's going to come down is that it's going to be very hard to uh, immigrate for at least the first couple of years.
0: Yeah, that could so I feel done.
1: like if I can, sure. I can get grandfathered in on account of just being there already yeah uh that would be handy Um yeah. but yeah and and you know going back to a, just a little bit of the the monetary thing like I, there's the canty effects and there's the addiction which i really love putting in those terms uh, <laughs> i've been watching stargate a lot lately with uh with the in group here and um one of the things is is that they have all these like uh, analogies for addiction with their big enemy and in, in that show and uh but the other thing that they bring up, and just because I was thinking about it in in those terms in the reference to the pop culture, but uh, every time a faction in Stargate goes away, there's there, the first thing that gets talked about is the imbalance of power between all of their factions and the the power vacuum. And so I look at it like, okay, not only is there the Cantillon effect, not only is there the addiction to you know the the largesse and and that power, but there's also the power of like. If you're a third world country like El Salvador or whoever, Cuba maybe, um, you're going to you're going to see that okay, that power is concentrated in you know places like the U S., places like China, places like the UN and and the EU. And what I need to do is just stop trying to screw with that and to get my power back by having a stable economy while they do their thing with the monetary stuff. So like. I, I kind of look at it like they recognize, they, they are looking at other countries with the same eye saying, okay, um, we are aware of power dynamics and this isn't just about being rich. This is about uh, who's in control of the economic you know, reality. And if if they're going to be in control, then nobody's going to be in control and that's why El Salvador went to Bitcoin. Right? Right. So that that's just kind of my, my whole perspective on it. So and and when I look at intentional community, I say, okay, well, how much stuff can I put back into my own control?
3: Yeah. So uh what I kind of I think I, I was sort of thinking about this. I was walking the dogs right before uh mm-hmm. we uh came on this. Uh, somebody just messaged me. I don't I don't know what that was, but um anyways. Uh and I was uh, listening to Against the Green, and that was kind of one of those things that um, <coughs> they he talks about this, and I thought this was kind of interesting, because we've seen this over the last years. One of the things he was talking about is that uh, historically, whenever they have some sort of sickness, the cities em- empty out. And we've seen that over the last year. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he said this is just kind of an instinct of humanity. Like it doesn't, it's not even a... Uh, not even like... He's like Probably historically nobody was like, they they knew intuitively that they should not be in these clusters of populations when there's a sickness. And so, and he says, that's why we find all of these ancient sites that just look like people like just picked up and left. And like dropped everything and we're just like, all right, we're out. Because according to him in the book, there was a lot of these earlier civilizations that we think of as being sedentary farmers. He said it was probably more like a mix um, and probably more on the gathering Side the hunting and gathering uh-huh. side and maybe the pastoral side, but for the most part they just were uh, their own thing, and um, and I think that's kind of interesting. But I was sort of thinking about it in my head as in like the, a cultural sickness and a monetary sickness. Uh-huh. It probably has the same application because it's just not safe to be in close proximity to a bunch of people when there is an illness that is whether it be right. you know. How whatever type of uh, illness it is, whether it be, you know, I, I'm not particularly concerned about COVID. Although I do recognize that you know the the numbers are are seemingly bad, but who who knows what all that actually is saying. But um, I do think, and I thought for a long time, there is a cultural sickness and a and for sure a monetary sickness. And I think that COVID was sort of more just a trigger to get people to start, you know, leaving. These large population centers, and that's why I think that as this accelerates faster and faster and faster, we'll see kind of the the rise of the small town, uh, because, and and we talked about this a little bit, Cody, when uh, we were down at Fredericksburg with Carr, that <clears throat> that that in a hard money system, it is a lot less attractive to go to a big city, because you can you can have a good prosperous life doing. Uh, normal things in a small town that, that, is, or that grew up organically around some sort of wealth building whereas in a inflationary economy the wealth building can be done there but it's sucked out of there through inflation and, and then put into the city centers where governments have a lot more control which is kind of one of the things that he talks about a little bit in Against the Grain. A lot of this is sort of forced centralization because it's easier for governments to control a, a concentrated population. Right. And whether they are consciously doing it or not, that's the nature of government is that it kind of tries to push people into a single area because it's Mm -hmm. easier. And and you can see this sort of in the rhetoric of the national government of how they talk about rural people or small-town people as being idiots and yokels and uh, stupid and backward and clinging to their guns and Bibles and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And –
1: yeah. Well, I mean, that's a that that's like a common theme with like dystopian novels. Uh, one of the one of my favorite, like not not to drag anime into this, but I'm an anime guy. And one of my favorite is Psychopaths. And they it's basically like they're they're kind of ripping the whole thing off of uh, Philip K. Dick. And they one of the big themes is that like towards the end, they end up like going out to the farms and, and finding, you know, the guy hiding out there to, to go fight the big bad guy at the end. And all of these farms are just run by um machines, like it's all automated one hundred percent everyone lives in a city. Everyone has one of those like emotional wristband things that tells you whether or not you're getting crazy and you need to calm down right um and yeah, like this that that's that's what they're trying to do, I think, um, and everyone's been calling it for the past one hundred and fifty years, oh yeah, yeah, but. And, and so something that leading off of that, something that I was thinking while you were talking was how much of this like getting out of the city's idea is due to sickness. And I'm sure that sickness is a thing because people kind of recognize, you know, I think people know how to handle their health even in primitive times. So like like they, they might might have recognized that. But how much of that is just sickness and how much of that is recognizing a power dynamic, noticing like of these political shifts, because these political shifts I think tend to happen at the same time. And how much of that is just a correlation that isn't necessarily a cause where it's like, I can like we're in Plato's cave and it's like, okay, I see that the sickness is going around. And I instinctually like I don't consciously know this, but I instinctually instinctually recognize a power shift happening. And I'm like, Oh, crap, I gotta get out, gotta get out of here. Right? Like, I mean, and I think that instinct is why you've got Jack Spiegel for the past. Oh, God, at least two years yelling, get out, 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 get out on TSP. Get yeah, out of yeah, the cities, right? And it's like, okay, like, I don't, you know, he was saying that before COVID.
3: Yeah, well, and a lot of people so, have been, or, I mean, since, well, really, since Trump is when I started seeing it a lot more, was, is people going like, look, this is not, like, Trump is, is not a cause. He's a symptom of what's going on. And this is, and I think that this is kind of, people are starting to recognize, I mean, you see people like Tim Pool, who's kind of a normie, left libertarian sort of guy and um like a lot of these types of people where they're just going like no you know something's wrong and you probably shouldn't be in an urban area and yeah. you just yeah, you just can feel it you're just like no there's there something well, going and, on and you got
1: to think about when you're in you get involved in like prepper stuff and you're just looking down youtube videos and there's there's bug out bags for the woods and then there's bug out bags for urban areas and the difference is shocking like it's not oh i've got a tarp and a hammock and and some way to make fire and some you know cordage like some of those things you do have like you might have cordage and maybe a sternocam that kind of thing but uh things that get included in like in a city bug out bag are going to be things like um a water key to steal people's water off the sides of businesses that don't have normal handles um, um you're going to have uh there's going to be more firearm type things going on there's going to be clothing designed for blending in with a crowd as opposed to camo right right i mean that's you, you want to see like what a city's like like i do not want to be in a city i would rather bug out in the woods catching squirrels for food than deal with being in an urban area that scares me
3: mm-hmm. yeah well and yeah. because i think there's like a a, a lack of Uh, being able to trust people in the city especially because there's so many people you can't can't know that many people Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just very difficult to trust and then there's something else in this book that was a, I don't remember who he said the quote was from but it was uh, something about, something related to the Wealth of Nations where it was a response to that uh, where I guess in Wealth of Nations he describes how like a factory and a division of labor can be like broken down into how to manufacture needles like where you have like 30 people who make one needle because they're each super specialized into like what goes into the needle. And then like the response to that was but what kind of like what kind of like life or how fulfilling is it for the guy who makes a head of a needle? You know, like but that's all he's done for 30 years. Is he just makes the heads of needles? What else does he know? And mm-hmm. and the book talks a little bit about that is that in order for people to settle down and become sedentary there was a great sacrifice of skills and knowledge, and so and he kind of says that's why he's a, he's more of the kind of gradualist view on this. Is he goes like if this if your lifestyle is this enormous amount of knowledge and how to do so many different things, and then you give that up to toil for three times the amount of time that you used to work mm-hmm. to get the same amount of food and probably less nutritious food, um, like. Yeah, and this book really makes me sympathetic to the in-prims. <laughs> yeah, but, oh yeah. Uh, like, but but going through it and like thinking about it, because like I like I'm very very highly specialized. I I code, and I code very specific software, and um and I've and I've done it my entire career. It's, I do all backend software development with financial calculations specifically to pay people, and I've always done that or taxes. Those are the two things that taxes and 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 calculations on paying people. And it's extremely narrow. And granted, I have other skills just because I'm interested in other things. But um, if like if it was sort of that Wealth of Nations sort of division of labor labor thing, and like that's all I did—twenty hours a day—is code, payment stuff. Like, what kind of what kind of life is that? And also, what kind of like not just human like, but animal like, existing in the world? <laughs> it's just kind of like a weird. Like it's yeah. like odd. It's very odd. And like, and the way he puts it in the book, I'm just like, Oh yeah, that, that's interesting. Cause that is really weird. Like,
1: Well, and that's been on my mind like crazy too. And I, I talked to you a little bit about that uh, while I was visiting, but uh, it's like just my own job. And I'm, you know, very on the opposite end of the, the ladder there is that I'm at a sort of a base level. Like I, I'll admit it. I'm an order selector, which I won't tell you where, but if you know what that is, you know what that is. You're throwing boxes, putting them on pallets, and sending them off on trucks. Okay, so if I do that for eight hours a day, and it's the same job over and over and over, I'm, you know, bending down, picking up a box, throwing it, Um, do you think anyone who's into farming or any sort of, like, normal... Like any sort of varied lifestyle that was before industrialization? Do you think that these people were doing the same repetitive task for eight hours straight every single day on, you know, a flat, hard concrete surface and destroying their joints? And like, it's insane. Like, I, I'm, my mentality around it has become so, um, I've just become disgusted with industrialization because I'm like, look, I could be out here like doing a variety of things and finding ways to make money and and using my brain. And what I'm doing is just repetitive motion and, and things that are like physically damaging to my body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just killing me. Like I, I actually said to a guy the other day, I was like, you know, I never thought I'd say this, but I wish I was throwing, you know, shoveling rock out of the back of the truck like I did when I was landscaping, and I never thought I'd say that because shoveling a rock out of the back of a truck into a wheelbarrow sucks.
4: But I tell you what, it's a hell of a
1: lot better than running, you know, back and forth on concrete for eight hours a day. Yeah. Lifting the same box you lifted two seconds ago.
3: Yeah, Uh, it it, it is a weird thing. I think that also might be one of the things that uh, is sort of pushing people and i think that the, the situation we're in is accelerating it is that people have just kind of generally been unfulfilled for a long time mm-hmm. i mean like it, like and victoria and i were talking about this a little bit after after our weekend down there is just how much better it feels to be on even though we didn't really own it, but like a ranch where there's like animals and stuff and, Oh yeah. yeah. And like trees and plants. I'm going to have trees and plants and squirrels and things Shit. like that in our neighborhood. But, uh, speaking of animals, I gotta put away my chickens and rabbits before it gets too dark. I'll be back. Okay. All right. But it was, you know, one of the kind of, one of those things that we were thinking about was, uh, it, it just feels better to be out there. And it, and it's one of the things that every time we get out into at least semi nature, um,
0: we are just reminded that like that's kind of where we would prefer to be.
3: Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. And and that might be part of the reasons why we're not really being allowed outdoors right now.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah. and that and might be. So they yeah, that I, I I yeah, it's it's just such a weird like I, I don't I really don't think this is I think it's what's going on right now is too big to be a grand conspiracy where everything's being orchestrated. I think that this is we're at a natural point or a natural conclusion of the state. And, mm-hmm. um, is somebody messaging on the,
1: uh, I Oh, the, I just, I was just tagging him to let me know when he's back. Cause I muted him. Cause I could hear his doors and stuff.
3: Oh, okay. Cause okay. Yeah. I, I, it pops up. I don't know how to work this thing, but, <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, like it's, um, I, I think it's like the natural, Direction of government,
3: and it's also the natural direction of sort of what we created here. Because, so like, because the thing is, I also don't like poo pooing it or be like that. That extreme about it. Like, I think our I think our civilization has developed a lot of amazing things, and and really just a lot of miraculous things. But I think sometimes uh, it like these things get developed, and they are amazing, and they do make life easier in a lot of ways. But we're also we need this to be integrated into our lives kind of or like into our humanity like these things need to kind of be integrated it you know factories were invented and people were moved out of farms into factories and it took time for and maybe that's not even done yet but like it took time for that to sort of be integrated in or like or sort of like what he talks about in um against the green where People became sedentary, and it was not a sudden thing. It was it was over multiple attempts to become sedentary, and like they had the knowledge, and a lot of times they just chose not to. And I've I've actually often thought about that kind of concept as well, where people just choose not to do this. So, like for example, what if you know we're talking on the internet right now, we use the internet extensively. I think it's possible. And speaking of Stargate, you remember the Knox? in that or the nox yeah
1: they're my favorite race yeah, yeah the where they yeah where yeah. they just
3: they just sort of like decided that they would still have technology and stuff but they just were like no like we're going to live in nature mostly yep. uh because they just decided yeah. to do that like what if they have
1: things that are useful to them but they don't they they specifically avoid all of the crazies
3: yeah exactly so like and that was kind of the thing it, like at the end of that episode when like their ship like appears or whatever and it's amazing like high mm-hmm. technology ship and stuff
1: but you it was know, sort
3: of in the sky. yeah, and they were just like, well, no, we just like we prefer to live in kind of in harmony with nature and all that sort of stuff. And I, I wonder if that's going to be just something that happens with humanity—is just that at some point, like we just go like, eh, you know what, the internet wasn't for us, or social media just wasn't for us. It's something yeah. that that we created. It's something that people like. We use Twitter a lot. You, you and I are on Twitter. Well, you're not anymore, but I'm on Twitter go a ton. Ahead. Like, uh, but I, it is getting to the point with a lot of this where. I don't know if we're ever going to actually make the decision, but it's something that has now entered our conversation about like not having cell phones anymore, just switching back to a landline, and right. and just not using the computers at all when I'm not working. And, yeah, well, I think uh, it's, that kind of thing.
1: I I don't know if it's just that like society will do that. I think it's like individual groups of people will say like and they'll have a strong cultural thing not to almost like they're going back to being Amish, right? Like we we were talking about that. And I think a smaller group has to decide because this is the thing about the Knox too and I know it's just a stupid TV show, but um they they had a very pacifist view on the world. They said, "No, we will not harm another living being even if they're in, literally in the middle of attacking you. No. Um we have ways of dealing with it. We can turn all our shit invisible. We can get out of here. We can teleport. We can do all sorts of stuff." They had amazing technology, and they said, "We aren't gonna. We're not gonna bomb people. We're not gonna shoot people. We don't care. Um, this is our ethical position, and we're we're sticking to it." And I think it's it's a good thing for any whether you're just uh, you know a libertarian uh, defensive violence user or a full-on pacifist that, that those communities are the ones making that decision. I think I'm not sure that I'm not sure that society as a whole will make that decision.
3: Yeah, well, and, but, and it, but it could also just be like what you're saying is it just could be that just certain people do it. And yeah, they do it. And, and, you know, that
1: may draw more people in.
3: Yeah, but I mean, and you think about it too, is a lot of people. You know, the Amish are a lot of times the butt of a lot of jokes and stuff like that. Mm. But they their society and their way of life has out is long is older than the United States and will probably last longer than the United States. Yep. Um, so there is something to be said that if you're talking about like I'm not sure how you would define civilization, but um you know they'll they'll probably be around longer than you know the American way of life. Um right. And it's there's something to be said about that. I, I, I you know. And Yeah,
1: I think it's important not to view a civilization as like the state that it's under so if yeah. you know like the US isn't a civilization that's a gang of thieves and murderers who are in charge right. of a group of people like so the the Amish aren't you know under any one guy they all have their own preacher or whatever pastor that they go to um but the Amish kind of we can call them the Amish collectively and they're okay with that and i think you know we we could even do that for for any group of of intentional community like we're talking, is we just say, "Hey, th- these are the guys that are, you know, they're just a little different."
3: Yeah. Whatever yeah. those
1: the name is for that.
3: Right. Yeah, and they're and they're and in the case of the Amish, they've been able to resist a lot of stuff that, um, yeah, probably was very difficult to resist. So, uh, you know, I, I think that I think that's interesting. It's also kind of a a white pill to use the modern parlance or whatever, is that like mm-hmm. they figured it out. I mean, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy always, but like those videos I sent you about, uh, those beach Amish. Yeah. Um, where like he was asking about something like, well, we're aware of it. We just don't really think about it that much. Like, like the, like stuff that's going on in the wider world. They're like, that's kind of the the wider world stuff. And you know, a lot of people will say, oh, if you don't pay attention to the wider world or whatever, you know, right. uh, you know, and they're just like, well, no, we trust God. And, um, you know, our life is, our, we live our life this way, and we teach our children to live their lives in a particular way, and uh what comes, whatever comes, comes, and we'll deal with it uh, the way we've always dealt with it. And for, you know, 400 years, they've dealt with it pretty well, so.
1: Yep. Yep. And that, you know, that's a concept that I've mentioned multiple times here before, is just that... um. You, you have to have some amount of stoicism and recognize what you really have control over. Um, and we're so plugged into like the news and everything. And you see like a murder happened in a town, you know, two hours away. And it's like, well, what am I going to do about it? You're just getting me angry and intense for no reason. And now that's going to bleed into my life. And so they're, they're sort of reinforcing this, this negative energy that is going to end up, you know, hurting everyone yeah, um, when n- none of those people can do anything about it, anyways. Yeah, I think that's um, part
3: of that the the cultural yeah. disease. I think is just that yep. there's and and really it's it's you know like what what in against the grain he's talking about is like you get these urban centers that grow to a certain level and then they break up and maybe to play into a little bit what you were talking about before is that our urban center with the help of cable television and the internet and all that sort of stuff has basically grown to be worldwide and and that might be part of the issue is that it's it may not be a disease that's going to separate us or whatever, but it is a cultural sickness and um, you know, sickness of spirit or whatever. and it's and it's spread through just there really you being connected to people that you probably shouldn't be connected, to. like us three and and the people, the burgers and stuff like that. we should probably all live in a town. but like, there are so many people that somehow impact your life, but not really. Like, I mean, like all of the What was the? What was that thing that? Um, there was some sort of award show or whatever somewhere. Um, I don't know what it was, but so everybody was complaining. Was it Emmys? I I I never remember what all the awards are talking
1: about. He yeah. was too white or something.
3: Well, they were. I guess the thing that everybody was complaining about is that nobody was wearing masks, and it was "quote unquote" outdoors, but it was actually in a, like a in like indoor te- like in tents. It was just it was just temporary buildings, yeah. basically. So that's you know, amazing. It's yeah. outdoors.
1: Great. Yeah, like, right. Well, if I, if they can use that excuse, we can use it at Schalenberg. <laughs> right. Exactly. It, it was like it was like the
3: most visi- like. But the thing is, it's funny, and and like I I, I do enjoy complaining about it, but. I don't give a shit about these people. <laughs> like, I don't even watch their movies or whatever. I don't know what an Emmy is for, is it for movies or is it for TV.
1: Yeah, Emmys were movies, I think, because uh, they were okay. just talking about. Because um, the the two white thing was, I guess there was a lot of um, awards. Oscars for Best Actor. Two white. The Oscars, oh, was the Oscars were
3: Somebody was yeah. telling me just Emmy earlier should be today. TV shows. That... Go ahead, okay, straight. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what everything is for. No, I think Emmys yeah.
2: are. I'm looking it up, but I think Emmys are TV shows because it was like an, oh, old, an okay. old joke.
3: If you're being really dramatic.
2: I think it was in Benchwarmers. They called him Daytime Emmy.
1: Gotcha. Oh. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that might be a TV. Yep. But yeah. they, were, they were Academy saying that the, I guess they were saying the Emmy was too white because uh, there were, there were no people of color who got awards for best something actor. Huh. Which, whatever. <laughs> you know. It's, yeah. it's just this. This kind of plays into our our culture thing again because it's like, well, you're just finding things to complain about, and it's you know, it, it's putting a negative aspect on everything else you yeah. do.
3: Well, it is. And it's like, it's
1: all over Twitter and, and yeah. But like, and then people that, can't go through yeah. their daily life. Like when, when I first got my job, one of the guys that I trained with was uh this uh, black kid from Chicago and he didn't get along with one of our trainers that we had. And I was like, I was like, dude, I swear to you, it is probably not because you're ra- He's racist. It's because like, that's a really easy thing to just assume. And I get it, but also like, you know, there there was some other issues that were going on, and I was like, I'm pretty sure you're just having like a huge personality conflict and and I you just gotta let it go. I mean he's gonna be gone tomorrow, and you'll be we'll have a different guy tomorrow, you know like i it it bleeds into everything else you do, you know what I mean like you you see it on t v all day every day, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this is a big issue, and if if someone has a problem with me or if I have a problem with someone, all of a sudden it's racism or it's sexism or it's whatever,
3: yeah, and I don't. And I don't think that uh and you know, I'm very white, so maybe I'm wrong on this, but I just don't think it would be a thing in like in a in a small town.
1: No. I, well, yeah, maybe it would, I don't know. Well I'll say two things on that. One is that and I forget who said this, I think it might have been Dave Smith, but if someone is actually racist, they're very upfront about it. And two if you're in an intentional community you or any kind of small community, small town, you you have a more personal relationship with people you live around and you know them. If you yeah. know them personally, it's a lot harder to just be like, oh, it's because he's racist. You know what I mean? You, you actually have to be like, well, why is this person mad at me? You know what I mean?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you might you might know their personality a little bit more and be like, OK, well, it, it might be because of this thing that happened earlier today or it might be because, you um, you know, someone that we, we both know, like maybe his, his wife or someone doesn't like me. And so now he's treating me different because of that. Right. Like there, there's all kinds of weird things that you pick up on if you actually know someone, but if you don't, the first thing you see is, well, he's white. I'm black. Obviously it's because he's racist. Right. Right. Or yeah. whatever, right. Whatever it happens to be. That's just the, the easiest one because it's, it's salient, right? That's my favorite word. Salient. Mm. It It's, if you can pick it out quick and easy it's real easy to come to that conclusion.
3: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of and where i I'm I guess the other thing too, I think is that like, back before there was like such a large overarching government, people lived weird with, with people that they wanted to live with. And mm-hmm. uh, in towns where some people were racist and some people weren't, then you just wouldn't be the same town eventually. Whereas, and I think that's how you get like the black wall street in Oklahoma and stuff. Mm-hmm. Although the people around them blew them up, but uh, you know, you get those types of situations yep. where people just kind of are like, Yeah, I don't, I don't really want to be around this guy, and uh, so I'm not going to be. And then, yep. and, you know, the point I always bring up, too, when everybody's like, oh, but, you, you know, segregation is like, yeah, but segregation was laws that were right. enforced by the government. It's like they, they had to put laws in because people weren't following the segregation. So mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of Uh, yeah if
1: you ever like that that was the biggest like white pill on the whole racial thing was reading thomas Sowell's uh black rednecks white liberals essay yeah and it's It's literally just all of the data showing that like look you know especially with the whole the woolworths boycott um people way before uh desegregation happened before they got rid of all that were already saying no we're not putting up with this so like in general i think people are pretty happy to live with people of all stripes we're just like look we don't we don't think it's right that you can just like keep people out of your restaurant or segregate inside your restaurant, you know? And so
0: yeah, like people are better than you think they are. I think in most cases.
3: Yeah. I I found that to be true is most people are pretty cool. And if they're not like, just don't, you don't have to be around. Yeah, You just
1: don't. And and people are very good at that. Just being like, no, I'm just, I'm not going to eat there then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Same people are good at that right <laughs> right true well but even with the, the covid stuff think about it like y- you can make an argument who's right who's wrong but even the like the the left and the people who are very pro vaccine are out there saying okay well I'm going to not deal with the people who are anti vaccine and it's like okay well good I didn't want to deal with you either and then we all move on with our lives right like as long as we can do that without, you know, military force coming down on our heads, I think we're going to be fine. And I think with, you know, the combination of hard money and secession coming onto the table, I think it's going to be very possible that we could be able to do this peacefully. Mm. Um, You know, (laughs) let's take the the speculation about where the troops that came back from Afghanistan are going to go aside. Like, I don't you know, it, we we can fearmonger, or we can sit here and talk about the fact that the world is is looking a lot brighter than than most people realize. I think. I think that's yeah, a better right. thing to do. But also, the...
3: tr- you know, troops don't troops don't work for free, so they don't. They if, you, don't. If, you, if you don't
1: get the money to pay them, then right, it's not going to work out. Yep. Well, and and when all the, I mean, the university system is breaking down too, and one of the biggest things that they do is they give them free college or whatever, and when that becomes worthless. One of the number one recruiting devices they have is gone, yeah, so yeah, you might see an honest recruiter after that, <laughs> like you really want to get right. You, you really <laughs> want to get um white pilled. go check out um I think it's uh it's on the Bitcoin standard podcast with Safadina Moose. He's been working with Michael Saylor actually on his online academy, so that's I think it's just sailor dot uh, but. They he he just had an episode where he brought um one of the guys that works for Sailor on uh, Jeff Something, I can't remember his last name, but uh if you go check out that episode, like they're sitting there talking about how they're able to provide education to literally millions of people for like ten bucks a person and it's like a full-blown college, like university degree. Um, and all they're all they have to do right now is get accredited so that they can actually give a literal degree, but otherwise like they're seeing like people in all sorts of uh, other countries use their certificate saying hey i completed this online thing to get their jobs so they're like okay like we technically don't even need the accreditation but it would be nice just to kind of like keep up with everybody that still uses that but it's becoming archaic like we are entering and this is why i say i think the university system will collapse is that we're entering a world where All you need to do is say I've completed X training. Like I can go, like I can make a binder that just says, "Okay, I've read these books, I've done these trainings." Oh, and here's a video, like because you've like online profiles now. You can actually have the video of your sales pitch or whatever it is you're doing Mm -hmm. um, as part of your resume. You don't just have to have a piece of paper saying you're good from you know Harvard or Yale or wherever. You know, whatever community college you went to, like you don't need a piece of paper anymore. You can actually have the actual evidence of you doing good work on an online profile.
2: Yep. Hey, is that episode the it's on the Bitcoin standard?
1: Yeah, on the Bitcoin standard podcast. Pretty recent. Let me let me look up the guy's name. There you go. Yeah. Um, because in just before that, he had an episode with Michael Saylor. They did a Twitter Spaces with Michael Saylor and just talk they were talking about it on there too. So they called it Oh. The Power of Online Learning with Jeff Davidson. Um, and right gotcha. before that was uh, homeschooling. There was a homeschooling episode. And then Dean and Michael Saylor on the Austrian economics course that Saifedean built for Saylor. And then they end up talking about what the university is actually doing in that episode as well. So it's just the numbers are astounding. Like the the amount of return that they're getting, the low cost that they're putting in. Um and the fact that, like, that even if they don't have the accreditation to give out a literal degree, like, the certifications are becoming a thing, right? Like, I can get certifications to become a car mechanic. I can get certifications to show that I know, you know, Python, whatever. Like, I can go online. That's how my yeah. one of my friends has for his job. He just got online certifications, and then he showed up, did some work for them, and eventually got promoted and became part of the developer team. So, on uh, with rad. his company. So, yeah, I'm like, dude, like, you don't If you know what you know, and you can write down a list, like, okay, here's all the books that I've read, here's the things that I've done, and, you know, in his case, it was go in and write some code for him and and show them what what they had, you know, uh, what they wanted, or show them that he was proficient, or in, in, you know, in in your case with the the lawn thing, you know, you can show them that you're good at what you do and that you're a, a nice guy and that you're punctual and that you're... Uh, unique. You know, I, I had an idea uh, for that that we can get into after a little bit just because I was thinking about it earlier, but um, we're, we're, you know, it's another white pill. We're in a situation where we can do all of these things without the legacy system.
2: Mm-hmm. And the ability to build skills and get out of a shit job has never mm-hmm. been stronger. And, yeah. And, like, so many people are just like completely blinded to that, you know, probably because they're so demoralized because they've been doing the same garbage for long, well, and we've been so long our lives. they' gotten comfortable with it that they just don't yeah. even look elsewhere
1: we've been we've been taught our whole lives like if you want a good job, you got to get a degree, And it's like, well, not anymore, you know. Um, yep. And I keep trying to explain that to my family, and they're like, well, you need to go back to college, and I'm like, no, dude, like you're asking me to take on debt and what we've been talking about this is why sound money, I think, is such a important part of our discussions here is. The more debt you get into, you know, quote Jack Spirko again, it's a slavery that we do to ourselves. It's the worst kind of slavery because of that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and and I think Sailor Academy is free too. So like I can literally go on there, just take it at my own pace. I don't even have to do so many credit hours a, a week or whatever. I can literally just do it at my own pace. And when I'm done, just go to somebody and be like, hey, I'm proficient in this. Here's my certificate. You know, here's where I got it from. And and there are colleges that are taking his material and incorporating it into theirs. So it's like, okay, if his material is good enough for regular colleges, then I think the certificate is as good as a degree.
3: Well, and mm-hmm. I think
1: too, one thing that, you know, how
3: I don't know what the saying is exactly, but like uh, the tighter you squeeze, the more it oozes through your fingers or whatever.
1: Yes. Uh, oh, I don't know what that's saying. Oh, is that's exactly. a good way to put that.
3: Yeah. But like, like the, uh, with the, The mandates for vaccinations, for example, I think what we're going to start seeing is a lot more. So as you guys know, and as I think I mentioned, I've worked a lot in payroll. um, And one of the reasons why people require degrees a lot of times is because it's it's a, well, it used to be a very good way of telling if somebody could at least, was at least competent enough to do basic stuff. And one of the reasons why it was difficult to take a risk is because there's a lot of payroll risk involved when you're hiring somebody and it doesn't work out and you just fire them, especially especially in certain states like New York City or New York and New York City in particular, but also like California's got these problems and stuff like that where if you hire somebody, a lot of times it's very difficult to fire them because then your unemployment insurance rate goes up. Um, and that goes up for all of your employees, not just that employee. But there's also the onboarding cost, and and then additional reporting and stuff like that. That you still have to pay all of that reporting for that customer at the end of the year, even if they only worked for you for a month or something like that. So, but with the, I think with the uh, vaccine mandates, I think a lot of employers are going to start, especially with the labor shortage going on, which is an artificial labor sh- shortage. I think a lot of employers, and they already are, starting to make kind of exceptions. To their old hiring practices, just to onboard people, and uh, I think what we're going to start seeing is sort of that old method of hiring uh, go away. Because if you're hired under the table, the risk to from the, the payroll liability side is much lower. Um, now, granted, the the risk of you know fees and things like that from the government because you hired somebody improperly is is there, but but since you already basically are suffering anyways and you can't hire people because of whatever restrictions they're putting on, you're more willing to hire people under the table to try them out. And if you're willing to do it that way, you're probably willing to take on a little bit more risk and accept credentials that you wouldn't have accepted previously. So, um, or just, you know, somebody just saying that they can do it. And then you go like, Hey, let me work for two weeks and I'll show you that I can do it. Yeah. And, uh, 'Cause like I have a degree, but you know, when I moved to Texas, my degree was only state accredited. It wasn't accredited in nationally, so it was only good technically in Virginia. And uh, they uh, I mean it probably was good in other places too, but like when I got hired at my current job, they were like, Well, can you do this stuff? And I was like, Yeah, give me a practical, I'll show it to you and like they gave me a practical and I just was like yeah. and they were like, Oh, I guess you can do it. But I had also been, you know, work I was also had been a software developer for eleven years. It was, you know, a little bit different. But yeah, I think in the, I think in the future when you're like, "Hey, I need a job. I need some way to prove myself. I'm I'm willing to come and you know, work for you for a, a, a small amount of time
1: mm-hmm. for
3: uh, lower wages or free, and we'll assess, we'll reassess after two weeks, just so I can show you that I can do this stuff. Yep. And I think because employers are already going to be skirting law a little bit. They're going to be like, okay, well, I'm willing to do this because, A, if it doesn't work out, my unemployment insurance won't go up. I won't have to pay for the reporting at the end of the year because they're not really an employee. And, you know, all of the other expenses that they would normally incur onboarding somebody, they, would, they don't have to pay anybody to enter them into the system. That's another thing that's, like, bizarre about the world we live in is how much software as a service. I mean, this is sort of another debt thing it is basically, like, the software as a service stuff where like all of your data is all of this stuff. Like there's so much compliance software with like stupid government things.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And that's, that's basically what I worked in pretty much my entire career is in compliance. And it's, there's all this weird compliance stuff, but the way a lot of that's set up is to sort of tether you to this company because migrating your data that you need to be able to report to the government where you get these huge fines is, is difficult. And so, and then on top of that, they're adding all this new stuff to the employers, like these vaccine mandates and stuff. And I guarantee if this government doesn't collapse sooner, this is going to be rolled into Obamacare. And you're going to have to be reporting yearly on that they're updated on the vaccinations, that it's going to be part of your yearly COVID reporting that's going to be part of Obamacare it's or, or yeah. ACA. And, yep. I, and then they're going to start... I guarantee if this keeps going, if this lasts long enough, lots of this stuff is going to start being tried. They're going to try to add a lot of stuff to, because just think about it from the perspective of one of the largest lobbies in the country is the pharmaceutical. If you can force everybody to buy your product every six six months or whatever, or every three months, like, and they have to report it to the government or your employer's going to be fined $14,000. Like, this is how they do income tax. It's the same thing. It's like they don't have to come and get it from you. They just tell your employer if you don't do it, we're going to basically run you out of business. I, I, it's, it's, I mean, from a compliance standpoint, this is like sinister genius in some ways. Like it could be done and it could be easily done on the ACA. And I would, I, I don't do that programming anymore, but I would have a couple of years ago been the person doing that software development. For the for the compliance recording, or just recording and helping people comply, uh, it's it's a weird thing to think about, and and I actually I should actually see if Mason wants to go on at some point because I think I talked to him about this a little bit when ACA first came out and I was developing the software for it and I was like this reporting is ludicrous for one and it's expensive, but also I guarantee they're going to start tagging stuff onto this, like this is oh, it's yeah. not it's not just going to be purchasing insurance as soon it's going to be, because. Uh, right as soon as it came out, it was not only did you have insurance, it was did you have the right insurance and did it cover the correct mm-hmm. things? And was it, and you and you had to show all these things, and the fees were bizarre and like, and I, as I was developing it, I, I was like, we should actually be developing this because this is the way a developer is supposed to think about it, is like we should be developing our data warehousing to expand because they're going to be requiring more stuff. And I am pretty sure that COVID vaccinations, if it lasts long enough, is going to be one of those things that's got to be reported on it.
0: Yeah, I don't doubt it.
1: So uh, uh, Jared mentioning in the chat, I guess, on Sailor Academy website, you can earn a completion certificate for free. And then it's only $5 to get college credit. But the thing I will note is they've talked a lot about this, is that uh, it depends if your college will accept it. But yeah, you can get college credit for these courses. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: And, and you can just like, take as cheap as could possibly be. Yeah,
1: it's it's dirt cheap. It's actually really stupid what they've done because they figured out like, okay, if they can, you know, eventually they might charge something like you know twenty or fifty bucks for it. Um, right. But if they're onboarding, I mean, they're about to hit a million students. If they can onboard a million students as quickly as they have, and somebody like Yale and Harvard, who are very exclusive, and for the the reason of You know, part of that's that Yale and Harvard are going, or they're trying to maintain that sort of. I don't know how to put it. You know, rich people like to keep things exclusive. That's just what they do. Um, Yeah. But the other part, you know, that there might be an economic reason for that is that back in the day, you had a library that was physical, and so you had to limit how many people could have access to it in order to keep things available. So you had a literal supply shortage. But now, the internet, there is no supply shortage. You can serve the same one lecture to billions of people around the world for the same cost per person. Like there's no reason why you couldn't. And so yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. Like they five dollars for college credit and uh your college might accept it. So if you're looking for that, uh check it out. Cause somebody I geez, there was somebody that they were they were talking about one of the stories is this guy figured out he didn't even have to take the whole course. He just wanted bits and pieces of it. Searched through the catalog, found the things he needed to learn and then completed his um and i don't remember if it was if it was a college thing or a job thing but he completed it just by using parts of it without even getting a full completion from sailor <laughs> and
0: so he's
2: nice. got like
1: a way better job and he just took like half the course basically and That's it's, awesome. insane. And if, it's insane. same if
2: anybody listening is interested in this uh, sailor.org is the website and they actually have a list of universities that will accept courses for college university credit and it's Actually, a pretty decent list. There you go. <laughs> um, nothing super major. Uh, well, Purdue.
1: There you go. Yeah, that's a big online one, isn't it? Like a uh, lot of people that go there, it's one of those like nationwide schools.
2: No, Purdue is uh, in Indiana. I don't know it's anybody, in anybody oh, who's okay. gone there online. Uh, Florida International sounds familiar too.
0: Is there um? What's it called? American. What do they call it?
2: American Business and Technology University.
1: No, there's American something university. And they had the commercial and like everybody knows the jingle. I
2: don't know. Arkansas State is on here. That's pretty big too.
1: Oh, there you go. See, if you've got state colleges doing it, I mean, that's eventually that'll be most of them.
2: Yup. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool what they're doing. And they do teach regular econ, but they also offer I mean, they're making a big statement just by offering Austrian economics from Sayidin on there. Mm-hmm. So like Yeah, it's it's a big deal.
3: that yeah, that actually be an interesting. I might I might take them on there. Like they've got some
1: pretty I know, I'm looking here. at
3: it. Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't, I don't know which one I would take,
1: take but yeah. I want to take <laughs> all the business related stuff cuz I'm going to need it. Like I, I still need one thing that I'm really regret is that I didn't get much of a, I, I was in that like tweener year where like they weren't teaching computer stuff the way they used to, but they hadn't really done anything. Like they were kind of BSing their way through updating it all the way to like modern times. And yeah, so totally. I didn't get a whole lot of Excel practice in like high school and middle school. Right. And there's some things on Excel that if you know how to do, you don't need to know anything else about computers. You just know how to use Excel, and then boom, you know how to run a business. It, like there's
3: yeah. there's a lot of work. Stupid. There's a lot of work in Excel, which is bizarre to me. But well, although like, I'm I'm a complete Excel idiot. Like Victoria, <laughs> Victoria does a lot of that that stuff for her job, yeah. and she'll call me in, and I'll be like, uh... I can write a program to do this. I have no idea how to do it in Excel. <laughs> yeah, um, right.
2: I'm the exact opposite way. But there actually is uh, a pretty good amount of Excel related stuff here on sailor.org. Sponsor us. Yeah,
3: a lot of there a lot of go. companies Real. use that. <laughs> the the, the <laughs> business stuff, uh, Cody, for the things that you and I have been talking about. Because like one of yeah. my one of my things that I'd really like to work on in the next year is like I really want to figure out some way to contribute to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I just think they have enough developers developing like the the normal stuff. And but I was thinking
0: mm-hmm.
3: find whatever is lacking in business services. You're it, talking just, layer three. Yeah, exactly. Layer yeah. three stuff. Something find things that are lacking in business services, things related to <laughs> I, I hate to say it because I'm so against it, but payroll compliance and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um because the like for most businesses, at least right now, and because we don't know how long you know the IRS is going to exist and stuff like that, um, this is something that businesses need, and it's an obstacle to converting to Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, and so like in order to be able to, and one thing that we've talked about, and I've done a lot of development for this when I worked at payroll is integration with POS systems, is um, is is making it a lot easier for small businesses to accept bitcoin payment and for to integrate into their pos because they use that as their basically their core of all the data that they use for compliance reporting so okay. um and that's kind of something that i've been i've been thinking a lot about this and i've shared i think on the show probably or with with you i don't know if i shut have done the show i've shared it with you and car individually for sure but yep. um it's just something kind of like like i would like to contribute I just don't think that they need layer 1 developers or layer 2 developers even anymore like they like yeah. they've got that kind of covered and they basically solved everything the, I think the only thing they haven't solved or or at least it's not it's not visible enough is basically is how do we remove hurdles for normies to just start using it yeah. and I think that's one hurdle is like how do I is like for a regular business owner is how do I integrate this into my business and it's got to be plug and play, and that's and that's I think that's going to be um, something where I can contribute at least a little bit. Uh, so maybe there's maybe there's something up on there that I could take a look at and and learn some more stuff about about that. Um, let's rein it back in a little bit. And yeah. Make it make it uh intentional community related some more. There we go. <laughs> I, I covered a little bit of the book that I started reading, which was recommended on the show, Against the Grain. Um, who's it by? I, James I it right. C. Scott. Uh, yeah, James C. Scott. Um, I don't know how historically accurate it is. I remember, uh, Cody, you said that there was some, like, disagreement on that or whatever. I remember hearing
1: people talk about that. I just don't remember what specifically. Yeah, but I don't know. But yeah, there know. might be some stuff that were, like, kind of, ah, eh, that's not really why that was, you know.
3: Right. Well, and the thing is, it was ten thousand years ago. So I find this, I find it plausible. Right. So, uh, great, great book so far. I, I appreciate the recommendation. I have not read the permaculture book that uh, Permy guy gave me yet. Uh, I when I have time to like sit down and read a book, I, that's my next book. Right now, I just listen to things while I'm working. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm kind of partway through against the grain because I've been listening to it. Um, so what have you guys been up to in the in the realm of well, in this sort of vein of intentional community stuff?
0: I'll give it to you, Jared.
2: Sure. Um I haven't read anything that would really apply recently. Um I did read Man's Search for Meaning and found a lot of interest in it, basically how it connects directly like to
0: flow. And there was another connection I'd made. I can't get it right now, but they—they were the one thing. Yeah, they're—they're they're basically all three hitting on the same
2: kind of psychological thing from completely different time periods and attacking it from different angles. So I just kind of reinforced to me that there's got to be some validity to the whole thing. Just like finding, you know, right suffering basically. Um, Finding value in that when, it, when yeah, you're it able to. That sounds
1: that sounds really familiar. Who yeah, I brought that up on the last one. Uh, oh, did shooting, you know, that okay. was? Yeah, that was uh, Cotton Narcist on Twitter. His recommendation because he's a he was a psych major and now he's a philosophy major. But uh, yeah, that was a... I, I read that and I was like, wow, this is so in line with everything else that I've been kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's just a good like reinforcement from a different perspective, from the psychology perspective, as opposed to some of this other stuff like permaculture. Okay. Hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
0: But I guess... Uh, yeah, as far
2: as stuff read recently, I don't have anything to contribute that direction. Um, aside for the, uh... the discussion topic I brought. Oh, we can okay. get to that after, after okay. uh, Cody gives his, if he has any updates. Oh,
1: sure, yeah. I've got updates on uh, restoration agriculture. I just hit chapter 15... Um, where he gets more into management, which, uh, funny thing about that is it's actually a very, like, y- you gotta realize this is kind of an overview of the concepts. So, when he gets into management, like, he-, he does talk about, like, how you can, like, one of the number one things is, like, how you can turn a waste into a resource, basically, so if you've got dead wood from a tree, grow mushrooms on it, kind of thing. Or if you've got, for example, uh, chestnuts is one of his big, like, that he's gonna grow as a food staple crop uh, because, it's good in our climate here in the U.S., most, most of the U.S., um, and it produces, you know, high oil and fat and protein what rich is it? nuts, chestnuts.
3: Oh, chestnuts. I, I chestnut. actually, that reminds me, uh, um, after you're done, t- remind me to tell you my foraging adventure.
1: Okay, sure, sure. Uh, but so the thing with chestnuts is, like, I think, what was it, 40% of that is shell? So that's a waste product. You go, oh well. Why would I grow this? You know, if if forty percent of it is just going to get thrown away. Well, guess what? You can do with that. Mulch it and send it compost. But what you do is you mulch it and you send it off to an electric company to burn as biofuel. So you're you're profiting on everything. And so that's this whole thing is like, look, it's whatever you're doing with it. You got to find something to do with it. You can't just be like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's waste. And that's like a huge permaculture concept. And I think personally, so this is um, something I learned from Jack. I didn't even know anything about it until I listened to him explaining permaculture concepts. But so there's the, let me, let me Google this really quick, but you've got the permaculture prime directive. And I don't remember what page of the book it's on. So I'm going to
0: Google it. Um,
1: It's basically, uh, you've got like three rules. let me find them really quick. Uh, the third of which is Return of Surplus. Yes. Which uh, the commies have hijacked. Which is the, the commies hijacked the crap out of that one. So yep. what the... Okay, that's this website is not what I want. Um, There we go. Let's go to the one that looks like a Wikipedia.
0: Hold on. Nope. If you can't
2: find it, it okay, wow. I know the three. Okay, yeah, tell me, tell me. Yeah,
0: I got you. So the the first
2: one's basically uh nature care. So taking care of yeah, the earth. Yeah,
0: care
1: of the earth. That's right, care of the yeah. earth.
2: The second one is care of others. Yep. And then the, the commies have made it rhyme and made the, so it's earth care people care, and then the commies make it fair share. Oh jeez. Yeah, just right. so it has oh. a nice rhyme to it. But the third one's supposed to be return of surplus, which is basically, you know, finding use you know whether finding best use basically of all parts
1: right yeah so the return of surplus like i said with the with the chestnut shells is you can burn them for fuel you can uh use them in your compost compost is probably like the number one example of return of surplus but the commies mm-hmm. will hijack it and say okay return of surplus well if someone's getting a wage there's surplus profit surplus labor in the profit so you, you're supposed to be returning that and so they say okay this justifies communism and it's like yeah. no, no 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 take your dumb economics out of it what we're talking about is biological cycles right the water cycle it goes in a circle the nitrogen cycle it goes in a circle so if i yeah. have a system that it, the system is supposed to be closed and it, there's a surplus of fruit but the point is that that there are other surpluses that you return in. So, like, people are eating things, and this is kind of why people get, like, grossed out about humanure, but humanure is a thing, and you have, you know, so I eat the fruit from the tree that I grew, and now, you know, there's a product from that, and then I compost that, and it's a different process, and you need to make sure that you do it properly, because you cannot just directly throw it back in the regular compost <laughs> pile. This is what really annoys me, because people think that that's what you're doing, and you're not. Nope. Um but if you, if you take care of it properly, the point is that you're not just putting it down a pipe that goes somewhere, right? Like, what, what is a sewage system? It's a hole that we dug to dump things in that will never see the light of day again. And then the city goes and filters the water back out and puts the water back into the, into the circulation. And so it's like, well, what, what happens to all this sewage? I don't know. And so, like, I'm a big fan of the, the composting toilet. And no, I don't believe you should pay $450 to a guy on the internet to give you a nice looking wooden compost toilet with, you know, polish and nice so grain. and So like, simple. I know, right? It's like, <laughs> get a five gallon bucket a urine diverter and build your own for like 10 bucks at Home Depot. Why are you like, I get it. There's designer stuff out there. But when people make fun of it, it's like, well, you paid $450 for a box with a bucket underneath. And it's like, yeah. And anyone who does that is an idiot. <laughs> I could pay $400 for one of those horizontal hives to get shipped to me and have me finish it like an Ikea furniture uh, from HorizontalHive.com like we talked about last time. Yep. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take the plans that he has for free on the website and go to Home Depot and get the stuff myself. You know yeah. what I mean? I could pay, I could pay the auto shop double for parts, and then, you know, $230 an hour in labor to fix my car, or I could do it myself, right? So it's it's funny to make fun of people for that. Anyway, so return of surplus is this kind con- the those are the ideas. So care of the earth, care of people. Care of people comes from care of the earth because caring for the earth increases the surplus, and then you return the surplus that the people don't use or that the people, you know, or, or that anyone uses, right? So the, the animals have surplus, and that surplus fertilizes the ground. Right, so it's returning back to the dirt. What we're not doing is we're not we're not keeping cattle on a concrete slab, feeding them grain, and then tossing the poop out the back door and, and leaving it a landfill somewhere. You know what I mean? Like that—that that, it gets used somehow. And even, I mean, it's it's funny because even corn, corn, most of it gets used for animal feed, um, and then some of it gets used for uh, ethanol production. And a very small amount gets used for human food, so it's, you know, like even corn. The things that we don't eat are being used for something, and, and you know that's a that we can get into a different concept from there. But uh, I'll I'll turn it back over. What's your uh, what's your foraging story, story? Yeah.
3: Well, well, you know how when we were down in um, Fredericksburg, there mm-hmm. was all those uh, pecan uh, orchards. Oh, nice. So I was, I, was, I, I was thinking about those while we were out here, and when we were coming back up, one of the places we stopped had one nearby the gas station where we were getting gas. And I was like, oh, this is what a pecan looks like. I, didn't, I had no idea. And it um, uh-huh. turns out there's a whole bunch of them in our neighborhood. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. I, I had no idea what they were. And so we just, while we were out walking the dogs, we just picked up a whole bunch of them and uh, brought them home. Yep. I looked it up to see if, we could, if you could just crack them open and eat them. And you can. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to, I guess, dry them in order for it to not like break up, but you can just kind of like scoop them out of the shell and Mm -hmm. eat them. But they, they're very, very brittle when you don't dry them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we had that and then I was like, I wonder what else, you know, grows around here. So I, I looked up online, like things that grow in this part of Texas and there's pawpaw trees. Uh Um,
1: That's another one that he's brought up in the book.
3: Yeah, so there's pawpaw trees all over the place here. Uh, And now, I didn't find any fruit for them, but I was able to just use the picture and identify and go, okay, this is it. And I looked into it. uh, So pawpaw, in order for it to fruit, there has to be two seed groves, and they have to cross-pollinate. So um, and I guess a lot of the times, they say in, in a lot of urban areas in particular, there's only one seed grove. It may look like there's tons of different trees, but it's the same grove, so they're all the same plant, basically. Interesting. Um, and uh, so if you don't have two seed groves, and then they also, they don't pollinate by bee. They pollinate by beetle. So um, oh. so that is also another reason why they just don't produce a huge amount of fruit. Um, huh. Or they, unless, like, unless it's a much larger forest or something like that. They said in a large, so we're going to go probably down to Trinity Park, which is a 1,500-acre park uh, over here. Um, really great park, we go rollerblading there. Uh huh. And, um, and it's, but it's a very dense forest also all along the trails. And so my guess is, I would assume because it is a naturally occurring plant in this area that there's, there must be multiple groves there and they probably cross pollinate. So when it's, uh, pawpaw season, I'm going to try to look for some of those. That's awesome. um, Yeah. It's just kind of neat to like see, like, oh, these are the things that are around here and the, and the pecans were really good. And, um, so I think what we're going to do as well is like, uh, there's still a ton of them in the trees. So we're going to just bring a paper bag with us every time we take the dogs out and just pick up a whole bunch of them and, dr- mm-hmm. and dry them awesome. out. And then we'll have some neighborhood. So,
1: yeah. Right. So they have this concept of rogue gardening where you actually go and like plant flowers in a public, like, like in a median or whatever. And uh, maybe you just like covertly drop the seeds there or in like some uh- mhm-. Let's say some businesses, flower beds, you put seeds for flowers there and then you come back and harvest them real quick and then people will be like, What you doing? And it's like, hey, it's public property, like I can just, you know, pull these out, it's fine, like whatever. Yeah. Um, but people do this all the time. They go to go to parks and and collect pecans. That's that's a huge one that I've heard about a lot where they it's like, dude, like you have an unused resource just laying on the ground over here. Like go go get yourself some pecans. Why are you buying those at the store?
3: And they're they're really um, expensive at the store too. They I know.
1: They yeah. are. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Uh But, and and I was going to say, you've got, so since those grow in your area, so what you can do, and this is what I've learned from my book here, Restoration Agriculture, is you can actually go, like, get those, you can propagate them one way or another, probably get a cutting and, and plant it, um, and you can take soil from the site so you, that you know the soil is balanced well minerally to uh, support pawpaws so that it's not like, you know, too alkaline or too acidic or, you know, short in one thing or another, or heavy in one thing or another. Yeah. Um, you can take soil from there, put it in your pots or whatever. It's not, you know, not that much to just start it. So you get the trees somewhat established and then uh, you could grab them from two different groves that way and bring them into your backyard and get them set up. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when when you're going to get them established. So he talked about this with oak trees a lot, like if or even, you know, chestnuts or whatever. Like we have this obsession with uh I think the way he puts it is why are we trying to kill something that wants to live and keep alive something that wants to die? So right. you've got all these plants that just don't want to live here and you're trying to keep out an invasive species. But like one of the examples he used is that somebody was trying to keep um I forget what, what kind of plant it was, but it just wasn't growing there. But he had hickory coming in that grew there naturally. And he kept trying to keep the hickory out. And he's like, dude, the hickory gives you almost exactly the same kind of product. Why don't you just let the hickory grow? Because it wants to live there. And then just find a way to incorporate it into your system. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. What does what is,
3: what is hickory, hickory do? That's just for wood?
1: Uh, Wood, but I think it also has a uh, plant. Let me Let me go back a little bit. Let me find out. It's got um, edible
3: it's just, nuts
1: as well. Edible oh, nuts. There you go. yeah, hickory has yeah. nuts. Yeah, hickory nuts. I know, I know hickory gets used like a lot for uh, smoking things. Um, but yeah, there's yeah, also I knew that. yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. When... Oh, here we go. Recently, I was working with a farmer who has been establishing a silvo pasture system, uh, and that's pasture with trees incorporated in. Um, For the past five years using cattle and sheep as livestock, I was hired as a consultant to help with some problems he was having with the system. He was having a terrible time keeping oaks and chestnuts alive on this site. It was an incredibly rocky, excessively well-drained site that could barely keep grass alive, and the crushed rocks beneath our feet could hardly qualify as soil. Many of the oak trees that had originally existed on the site were also struggling. Disease was devouring them and borders were tunneling beneath the dark and beneath the bark and girdling them before they could reach a mature and economically useful size. The farmer was unable to get chestnuts established on the site, presumably because the trees lacked adequate water during their establishment year. The farmer was not able to irrigate them due to the fact that he had planted them on a remote site that was inaccessible even to a trailer-mounted water tank. His own His other problem was his inability to control an invasion of shagbark hickory. The sheep wouldn't eat them, and they were taking over the places that he had reserved in his mind for oaks and chestnuts. He wanted to know what soil amendments he could use to encourage the survival of his chestnuts and get better health in his oaks. So, like I said, he's got chestnuts, but he's got hickory that wants to grow. Hickory produces nuts, and he's trying to kill the hickory and keep the chestnuts alive. And it's like, what are you doing? Huh. So welcome to Mimicking Nature. If your area grows certain things, you got to figure out what those things are. And that was like the number one thing going into this book uh, that was helpful because I did realize how much of an overview it really was, is that Darby Simpson on Grassfed Life had said when he brought it up the first time was, okay, I thought that I could just come out here and use this book as a blueprint, but it turns out that I have to really start thinking about my own context and not think of it in terms of, you know, I'm just going to copy what he did and do it by the book. There is no yeah. by the book. They're, the book is the land around you. What is right. the earth doing? So, yeah, that, that yeah. Makes
3: sense. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the other things that grow around here. Like, we have dewberries that grow wild here, and I eat those when I'm out with the dogs. What was that
1: fruit that you were telling me about a week or two ago? Um
3: Dewberry? Persoon? Oh persimmon, actually those do really well here. Uh, my my persimmon tree, I, I can't believe how well it, it's actually it's doing it. it uh, you know the other thing that grows really well here. Now granted, you do have to do cuttings and plant it and stuff like that, so it's probably not going to grow wild. But uh, blue giant Texas figs, they like Ooh. it. It just it grows real well, and um, I, I thought it died because had, we had that real bad cold last year. Mm-hmm. And I thought it died, so I chopped it back, and I was like, you know, I'll leave the stump. I, maybe it'll come back on its own. And it came, it came back on its own, and it's huge now. It doesn't have it's any figs. Up. Yeah, it doesn't have any figs on yeah. it. But uh, well, it has one fig on it, but it probably won't. I think it'll fall off. They they usually while it's being established, they don't really last. But uh, mm-hmm. my persimmon, my persimmon has two large persimmons on it, and it's like a year old. Um, I thought That's about awesome. pulling them off and just letting it concentrate on rooting and stuff, but I kind of want them, so. <laughs> I decided I to leave them, uh, And then, um... Also, my Loquat, uh, which I was surprised... I thought that also died, so I cut it back. And then it also, kind of on its own, just spr- sprung back up. And, uh, yep. So, like, there's, there's interesting things, but, like, growing wild around here, um... is, uh, there's a lot of dewberries over by the, uh... There's, like, a little stream kind of by house, oh, And, um... And we go pick. You know, we don't get a lot from it, but we do get some. And uh, and I like them. They're basically the same thing as blackberries, but uh, they uh, they taste pretty good. And they grow a little bit different. They don't grow in clusters like uh, uh, blackberries. They grow more like raspberries, where they're kind of like on the end of the the tendrils. Oh, Um, cool. Yeah, they're they're interesting and they taste good. Uh, And also, like I've never really been. I've always been kind of the type of person who. You know, walks by a a bush with berries and just sits there and eats them, which is I think is <laughs> kind of weird. But uh, I think it's I think it's like a I don't know if it's a maybe it's a country thing because we used to do this all the time in California. Is we would just be out and then like stop along the way and just start eating blackberries or whatever from the bushes or mulberries or something like that, and you know, not wash them. Which <laughs> I don't know if that's gross <laughs> or not. But uh, we always just you know, if there was a bug on it, just blow it and then like <laughs> keep eating it. But I, I thought it was just kind of neat. It was fun. To, it was fun. Like there, there are a lot of plants here in this part of Texas that I just don't know about because I, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Northern California, where I pretty much know everything there that's edible. But um, and would just you know stand around and eat stuff. But uh, which is kind of interesting. Like it, like as I'm listening to this this uh, the Against the Grain book and just think about how really how easy if the population was lower your life could be as far as food goes because it's just, there's just so much of it around. Right. And it's not that difficult to collect.
1: Well, and it's not even just the population. Like we, it, it's the fact that we've clear cut all of this area to plant fields and the productive yeah. capacity is actually insanely lower. So one of the things, yeah. let me see if I can find the page. Cause I, he did that whole takedown on corn. That was just insane. Um, I know my first my first note was page 85 so I'm going to go there first and see if it tells me anything but that might have been oh that's a different that's a different story but so it's further back um but if I can find the numbers here I mean just the the actual like he spends an entire chapter just saying okay well do, does corn feed the world and eventually he concludes no because like if you do the the ratio, I think, what is it, one-tenth of what you eat actually becomes part of your body. Therefore, if cows are eating this many pounds of corn, only one-tenth of those many pounds of corn actually become cow meat. And therefore, when I eat cow meat, I'm only eating this percent of the corn you actually produced.
0: Right? So, okay,
1: Okay. So, so he goes through that whole math process and he does all the math about um, how much we actually eat. And it goes from like, I think thirteen point nine million. I want to say pounds of corn a year, to actually being more like three point one or three point two. Huh. Um, that we actually eat. Um, and that's. I mean, that's not even including like all the countries that are having you know problems with uh, food shortages and everything else. It's just. It's absolutely ridiculous that you know. So his whole thing was like, well, look, like. Are we feeding the world? No, we're not. So what we need is a perennial system that doesn't need to be replanted every single year, that doesn't need huge uh, labor and um, chemical inputs to constantly re, you know, remake it, to restart that from stage one, the annual growth that takes over new you know newly turned over soil. Um, what we need is a system that, you know, lowers in maintenance, maintenance as time goes on and uh you know actually actually produces you know food crops and this is why he's so obsessed with nuts especially like chestnuts and stuff is because
3: let me stop like acorn
1: like acorn flour
3: let me i'm I'm just gonna step away for a second but i'm listening
1: sure sure um but like even you know because you can use acorn flour and people act like that's like real you know frou-frou uh grain replacement for people who are doing keto and everything but it's like no like if you think about it, the way that these trees produce annually with one planting and, and less and less maintenance needed as time goes on, you have a way more stable food crop than any wheat field in the country. So, um, I'm still trying to find this. Um, let me see, let me actually just stop flipping through randomly and actually go back to the front. To the <laughs> table of contents, yeah. My bad. Um I think he actually calls it, like, are we feeding the world or something, the steps towards farming.
4: Hmm.
0: No, he doesn't. Okay. So, I guess let me try chapter four. Yeah, this...
4: Hmm. Okay, yeah. I think it's chapter four.
0: yeah sixty percent of the entire human race now lived in cities in two thousand and eight of two hundred and fifty thousand or more um
1: yeah he he brings up Henry David Thoreau, and I'm like, oh, base I, like, I like Thoreau, yeah, yeah, so do yeah. I um let me see I went like to
3: Walden when I uh... I actually had an IRS conference and it was nearby Walton. So I, I so I, I drove up, it was like an hour or something like that away from Walton.
0: So I went out there to just check it out. Oh, here. Yeah. Here's one, one guy. Um, let me see if I can figure out who we're talking about here. Uh, J. Russell Smith, Tree Crops, a
1: Permanent Agriculture, was a book that he read. Um, well, Oh, this is his three books that changed his mind about permaculture. Um, so one of them being uh, Bill Mollison, and then the other one is Tree Crops, a Permanent Agriculture. So uh, J. Russell Smith says. Uh, So as a way to counter the loss of topsoil and to reverse the ruin caused by annual agriculture and the plow, Smith proposed what was a radical idea at the time, and unfortunately still is today. Since some 40 40 to 60% of all annual grains were fed to livestock at the time, he proposed harvesting tree seeds to replace the grains being fed to livestock. Why plow highly eroded lands to grow corn and create gullies when chestnuts, mulberries, honey, locusts, walnuts, mesquite, pecans, and more could be grown? Um, so that's one of the, this is one of the big books. I still haven't gotten, I can't remember if this is before or after the corn thing. Man, this is driving me nuts. Let me see here. I really want to get to that because if I can find the numbers on it, it just really, really fixes things. So farming in nature's image might be where he brings it up.
3: Apparently honey locust, uh, is native to this area, but I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know what a honey locust is.
1: Uh, It's the guy with the death spikes coming off of it, and I think there's usually a lot of hedge apples around. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, they're, they're insane. when I went disc golfing, so I think I told you about this, when I used a disc golf course these... that I used to go to that uh-huh. was lined with honey locusts on the sides, and you were incentivized to stay on the fairway because if you got off the fairway, you would step <laughs> on spikes that would go all the way through your shoe and stab you. Like, they're insane. Like, the things are, like, four to six inches long,
0: are and these, they're sharp
1: uh... in hell.
3: Are these um nitrifying plants? Uh, I don't know. they they sort of look like acacia. They have the uh that type of leaves sort of I don't okay. know I, I'm not really sure. I, they're just looking at the picture. I, I guess they're not exactly the same. I wonder what the, I wonder if that's if it's if this would be a nitrifying plant. And apparently they're native to this area, which is kind of cool. there you out. go. yeah, yeah. Right. I'll look around for these. and they got these big old pea pods. yeah, they do fix
2: nitrogen. Oh, interesting.
0: Well, okay. there you go. And they are uh-huh. good
2: coppice trees as well,
3: so they'd be good for firewood.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, maybe
3: uh, maybe Child- Childeberg Town maybe will have some honey locust. <laughs> it could definitely be incorporated for sure. Well, that's um, sort of why while you're looking for that, like yeah, sort of integrates to kind of like one of the thoughts I was having about the way that an, an intentional community could work in conjunction with permaculture is, you know, one of the things that I love. Parties, sort of like you know, like or like hookouts, that kind of stuff. And I always, I always thought it would be really neat if your town was developed because you have the, you know, we talked about the right to roam, where people have the ability to go through the edge of your property in order to get to their property or to just get through or whatever. And if, as a community, you decide, decide, I'm saying it wrong, decide to, um, basically like perme up that those walkways so like they're cleared for people to be able to walk through, but they're also you know, thickets of of food-bearing trees and plants and things like that. Um, sort of like uh, you know, breaks, how they have those breaks on like farms where like the farms are kind of divided up and then you have a break and people do whatever the hell they want on their property, but during the break, which is also a path um, you've got it develops so that this sort of food could grow. I always thought it would be really cool to have like the forage festival for the town so that Oh yeah! During the forage festival, everybody just goes out and collects stuff, and then you, you, you know, kill a cow or something like that and barbecue it up, but also just have all of the cool forage stuff that you got. Uh, oh, heck yeah, yeah. I I call just, it Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's what I was thinking about. I, I was like, you, you call it cool?
1: <laughs> The forage festival. <laughs> no, that's great though, because like if you have a site that's like this huge forage place that you can go and like make a thing out of it and everybody's walking around and picking things like I that's so cool dude like just
3: look yeah Because uh, Jeff, Jeff Lawton did this video when he was at um, Village Homes in Davis California and he was walking around he was like he said like this is such an interesting thing he goes like just walking down this path which is designed for people to walk but he goes but if you just look, look up here I can reach up here and I've got like a um I don't remember what what fruit it was. I think it was a um, a pomegranate. I think, but he's like he like pulls. He just picks a pomegranate off the tree, and it's like as big as his head. He's like wow. he's like we got these like he's like. But this entire place, he's like it's designed to be a suburban. Basically, it's it's a suburban neighborhood, but it's designed in conjunction with permaculture. And uh, he's like, and they grow a ton of food. They do almost they spend like virtually no money on um, landscaping because it's all, it just grows the way it's supposed to grow, but it's got a lot of green space and open fields for kids and stuff to play on. But the, but they, I don't, I don't remember if that, that's the one where they, um, I don't know that's the one where they like, they'll run goats over it to keep it trimmed. Um, but it's like, everything is designed terror And because, you know, the natural landscape of that part of California is very dry. Uh, and doesn't, doesn't support a huge, huge number of trees, but it can support some, but they've terraced it all and used swales and stuff like that along the entire place and then designed their neighbor, the, the area around it to kind of any sort of runoff from roads and stuff like that it goes into gray water treatment areas. And um, and then kind of over time is filtered down through these little marshy bogs that they set up and goes back into the soil. And so they're like, we don't have to irrigate. And it's it's the Central Valley in California there is a water crisis and there has been, and there always is. So um, he's like, we don't, they don't ever have to irrigate. They've got open fields and stuff like that because, you know, everybody kids like to play in open fields and stuff like that. And um, they have playgrounds and that sort of thing.
1: We're pissing off lawn Twitter and permaculture Twitter at the same time. I, I like have, where, yeah i mean I've really yeah that, that's my joke one. is that like i, I <laughs> yeah. just think we have both right so like yeah. you're talking about yeah, this, but yeah i'm like yeah. oh yeah yeah we're we're gonna piss off the permaculture by saying we have a lawn like, I mean, yeah I mean, and we're and gonna piss off the lawn twitter yeah. by saying we grow edge the
3: it. i i always but the thing is like all like and in my memory in small towns parks were designed with both or at least they at least mm-hmm. maybe not intentionally, but that's sort of how they were done. At least where I was, like there was this Park Bertelson uh <laughs> that um we used to go to all the time. And speaking of blackberry, that was a great blackberry picking place. And um actually that's one of the reasons we would go there all the time, because they had really good blackberries. But uh, they it was the way it was laid out is it did have open lawns and fields and stuff like that, but it was sort of like flowing and kind of like Lots of round curves and stuff. And then, like, there'd just be like random in the center of like these long open fields, there would be a thicket of trees with blackberries and oaks and all this. I and mean, oaks, and I mean, there are oaks all over the place here as well, but there was a lot of oaks in California pretty much every, everywhere you went, there's oaks, at least in that part of California. And, uh, but along with the oaks underneath them is you had a lot of different other types of plants and then and blackberries everywhere, blackberries. Um, Freaking love blackberries, it's one of my favorites, uh, and, it's, mm-hmm. and it's a good memory too of like just like you know you just stand out there forever picking on them and like and there's and you make yourself sick from eating too many blackberries, but uh and then you come home and if you you like were wearing a white shirt, you have just got stains all over your mouth and like all over your shirt, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was fun stuff. But like that, that's kind of like what you know when Jeff Lawton goes to village homes and he shows that he's just like, look, you can have a a suburban life and live in a neighborhood but your neighborhood also can be productive exactly Uh, and 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 that and village homes is a lot of people have chickens um they sort of do the, the way that they they have like every they don't do houses the way that like our neighbor like my neighborhood is designed where it's like this long sprawling house after house after house after house they cluster them so there's a lot more open space um and so the, the houses are clustered and more vertical, but they're all designed in conjunction with each other to utilize sunlight better so that you have reduced heating and cooling. And also the trees that are planted around it are fruit-bearing, but also uh, deciduous so that they can block sunlight in the summer and keep your house cooler. And then they lose their leaves in the winter and so your house will be warmer and all the houses are aligned that way. And then every cluster of home has just ladders that are just kind of like laying around in the back so that you can go climb up the tree and pick whatever fruits and stuff like that you want that just Mm -hmm. grow in your little. And so the way that it works is that each cluster of home has like a designated sort of permaculture orchard and supporting plants that belong to that small cluster of homes. But then there's the entire community with all the paths and walking areas where there's also food producing plants and trees that you're allowed to just pick off of. So there's like some that only your your people in your little cluster are allowed to pick off of, but then there's also community wide.
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Trees. It's really
3: neat. It's really it's a it's a really cool idea. I liked it a lot. Um
1: and it's So like, that's good. Well, I was uh, I was just going to say in my mind I'm looking at that and thinking, okay, that kind of reminds me of like we were talking about earlier with the Knox. It's like almost this like isolationist level and prim thing where it's like I just walk out and get my food and I don't really you know, I don't need to import stuff or export stuff, I just have what I need, right?
3: Yeah, the guy—the um, guy who designed it—is still alive and and works on it. And he said he's—he gave an estimate on one of the interviews that Jeff Lawton did. And he goes like, he's like, I estimate that we probably could live off the food that we produce. And he said most people don't. I mean, it's they're yeah. regular regular people who live it. Most of them don't even really think about this stuff. It's just that's the way the neighborhood is designed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of. When you when you join the neighborhood, that's part of it. Like it's just part of what you're buying into. Kind of it's sort of it's sort of like a uh, what are those things where everybody hates them? Um, that the neighborhood organizations. What's that called? Um, HOAs. HOA. So it's kind of like HOA. It's like when you buy your house, your the understanding is that it's you're not really. It's not really a independent castle kind of thing. It's more like you're in a you're in a village sort of and. Uh, yeah. And people choose that lifestyle, and they'll pay a premium for it too. Like these houses are not cheap; like it's expensive to live in there, and it comes with certain things. Like there's a there's a natural pool in the neighborhood that you're that when you buy into living here, you get access to the pool. And there's like a cafe, but only the neighborhoods allowed to go to the cafe. It's not open to the public, and um, you know. And then as part of the deal, is you have access to food, and you're allowed to have a certain number of chickens on your. Uh, in, in the like, your clusters common area, so everybody in the cluster is allowed to have like a certain number of chickens in the clusters common area. So, and you can move your little coop around your your common area. So, um, and and then they use whatever techniques they can use to kind of keep the rest of the. This is would actually be like the perfect job for you, Jared. Is to uh, live in a place like that where. You're basically just the dude who lives there and also takes care of the permaculture forest, yeah. And then it's just part of the neighborhood pays you, it's just that's mm-hmm. just how it works. I, that'd be great,
1: yeah. I actually, uh, that was something I'd been talking about with the Kansas City Freedom Cell guys is that somebody was actually like, Hey, why don't we all go in on like a 10 acre property, set up a food forest, get one of you guys to be like managing it, and then we all just kind of like use it as like a hobby horse slash. Like community production thing, like, you know, we all go in on a cow together or whatever. Um, And, you know, like one of us would be kind of the dedicated guy that just lives there on property and sort of maintains it.
3: That's kind of what I was thinking, probably Chilburg, depending on how fast things go. That was kind of my thought for Chilburg Town because I don't really envision um, Victoria Victoria and I living there 100% of the time right away because we just don't, that's just, we don't have that skill set. Um, and so it doesn't make sense, but it would make sense for somebody who wants to live there to basically move there. And then as we're growing, try to figure out how like to pay them to be the food forest caretaker. Right. Well, and and it's not like there is a
1: division of labor in that. Right. So, yeah. So like, even if you have your own thing, like I know you've got experience with like fish production. And if that's something that you wanted to do as a hobby or, or as a side hustle, you could do it absolutely, but like there's always going to be, you know, if let's say you have 100 people, maybe only two of them are really like the farmers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or or I don't know, like I would like it to be more, maybe a quarter of them are farmers and the rest are doing other things. You know, you're you're going to have a blacksmith, you're going to have a a mechanic, you're going to have the guys that are into coding and internet stuff, you're going to have yeah. the plumber. I mean, right? like, and and, and, I,
3: and I think there's, there's going to be some crossover. Like, I've always been a, a hobby gardenist yeah. like, or a gardener, gardenist. I've always been a hobby gardener. Like I, I, think I, I mean, there's only been a very few number of years where I didn't have like at least some tomatoes. And I don't even like tomatoes. I just like growing stuff. So, <laughs> right. Um, like I've always had just plants and and fish. Like you said, I like I, I like I like had I liked raising tilapia. That was a lot of fun for me. And I like doing that kind of thing. But that's just never been my like career passion. Although programming is not either. So, um, <laughs> but like I like. I like a lot of that stuff, but it's also not. And I, and also, I like to on the weekend to be able to go outside and work. Have an excuse to work outside, like work on mm-hmm. stuff outside, like. And that's why I think, like gardening, or like, you know, let's say that, that you two are in charge of the food forest or whatever. It's, and it's Saturday. I'm like, Okay, let me help you guys with a chop and drop. What are you doing this week or whatever? Or let me haul around, you know, dirt or whatever you guys need me to do. I'm happy to do that kind of thing because I like it.
1: Well, and that's, I mean, going back to our earlier conversation, that's one of the ways you get in with somebody and say, hey, I know how to do this now. We work together well already. I've done this as a hobby, and now I'm looking for a side job. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. So it's its just one of those things like, hey, like, let's, and that's thats kind of my thing is like, just be friends with people, offer to come help them out once in a while and, and say, you know, even if, even if I don't end up getting a job here, I'm learning about what they do and I'm, I'm what so that i can go home with that knowledge and do something with it right yeah, um, yeah and, and like so i give you a tip aquaponics. off of what i'm planning when i come to texas <laughs> right right yeah well I like uh, and like I like Because i know people there. down there doing this
3: well yeah like, and well actually texas joe is talking about that too where like he's getting that's, he does a lot of that yeah. stuff and
1: um and hey can uh, i come over on a uh, saturdays <laughs> yeah just like help that's, out like that's what i'm yeah. saying yeah and learn stuff. Um, I did find the corn stuff. If you want to know the numbers, oh, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Okay, uh, so he starts off with bushels and gets percentages of that. Um, and actually, I'm on the wrong page because I'm a doof. Um, let me see here. Oh, here we go. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't pounds; it was calories. So we've got uh, 13.9 million calories that we're supposedly competing with as food production. Right? Turns out, uh. million go to feed animals, 4.2 million go to fuel, 1.07 million are converted into industrial ingredients, and 1.4 million calories are exported or used as human food. So, by the end of it, what we have is, so when you take the trophic level discount, which is where I was talking about with the 10% becomes meat thing, and add it to the calories lost as fuel for vehicles, the total number of calories available for humans from one acre of corn come out to a mere 3.06 million calories per acre. So out of 13.9 million calories produced per acre, only 13.06, go to feed humans, only 22% of the calories in the entire U.S. corn crop is consumed as food. This is the true food yield of corn. If we can provide humanity with more than 3.06 million calories per acre, then restoration agriculture farmers are doing a heck of a lot better job at feeding the world than king corn. So instead of can we feed the world in the Savannah analog, the question perhaps should be can we produce equal or compatible amounts of foodstuffs, fuel, and industrial ingredients per acre as annual agriculture? So I think this is why he brings up using, you know, like wood byproduct as biofuel and stuff like, hey, you can send it off the electric company to run their generators um cuz he's also including the fact that he's competing with agriculture as a like as a whole system. Um so then we go over to the calories that he he's got so this is the nutrition section of the book uh and then the following chapter is nutrition on perennial agriculture. And uh after he runs all of those numbers based on like a really basic system that he sort of lists out and he puts all the nutrition facts for everything in that system uh the total human food calories for that is 5.977 calories per acre and that's as conservative as it gets so we're talking at least double that most years um but he's already doubling the the corn calories for food huh and i think actually he he actually includes cuz there is a section in this nutrition chapter for perennial systems on biomass. Yeah, coppice wood and prunings represent a significant yield in a restoration agriculture system. At first thought, it would seem that surplus wood can be used as heating fuel for the farm. Uh, At New Forest Farm, we operated under that assumption for quite a few years until we realized that we were faced with a wood disposal problem. Because it turns out when you grow a ton of trees and they start getting really big, you have way more wood than you can deal with. Um, Where previously the farm had been a bare dirt, corn, and bean field, and wood was a scarce resource, within 10 years wood was in abundance. Within 15 years it began to pose a challenge. How can all of this wood be utilized? And so he gets into the whole thing about um, oh here we go. So although we have yet to build the system, our calculations show that one acre of hazelnut shells, for example, should produce nearly $90 worth of electricity per acre is sold to the utility company at 12.5 cents per kilowatt. Um, and that's, there's a thing called because uh, ga- you can gasify wood, I guess, which makes it once oh. you go once you process it that way you can actually sell it as natural gas to a ga- uh you know uh electric companies so how do you do that how do you uh, oh, yeah, I, I have I no guess, idea yeah. I, that's, I'm that's gonna, I'm meaning to look that up yeah, that's, <laughs> yes. that's that's, I, that's wild <laughs> you can literally convert wood into uh fuel for electric companies to burn yeah it's insane so wow huh Uh, that's, that's one of the big ones. Um, let me go through my notes here, and I'll, I'll blow through the rest of these really quick. There's a couple stories that I think are just really kind of emblematic of the whole thing. So, page 85, this is the one about the apple orchards that he actually grew up working on before he was even a a real farmer. Um, here we go. Okay. So... Uh, As a youngster, he grew up in the apple country of Massachusetts. His childhood home was only a mile and a half from Leo Minster, the birthplace of John Chapman, better known as Johnny Appleseed. This area of north central Massachusetts was home to a thriving fruit growing industry when I was growing up. By the time I was large enough to hold an apple in my hand, I was working for William Flint of Apple Lane in Lancaster. Old Mr. Flint, we called him, and evidently he must have been old because he was called Old Mr. Flint even when my father was a boy. Old Mr. Flint had managed the farm and orchards at Apple Lane since 1939. In addition to milking 20 cows by hand, he had worked at a foundry all his life. He walked slowly and was bent from years of hard labor. Old Mr. Flint grew apples for people to eat, but mostly he was a juice grower. The Very Fine Juice Company was founded and operated a juice... er, Yeah, was founded and operated a juice plant in Littleton, Massachusetts, a mere 20 miles from Lane Orchard. Uh, He grew fruit for a very fine, a certain way when I was a youngster, but he told me about growing fruit in the old days, still fresh in his memory. Back in the old days, he told me there were no sprays. He had not used any sprays himself until after World War II, when military surplus poisons were available cheap and manufactured at the Dow Chemical Plant five miles down the road. Back then, apple trees were only minimally pruned. In late winter, he told me the trees were pruned with spaces between the branches so that a robin could fly through it and not touch its wings, but he said if you could throw a cat through it and it couldn't catch a branch, then you cut too much. That was the only pruning advice I was ever given as he watched me from a seat on the wagon pulled behind his old red and gray Ford 9N tractor. What a great what a great way to prune a tree. <laughs> I know, right? But it's so good. to like. Yeah, I like it. Oh my gosh. Right. Okay. So, um, all trees back in the day were standard-sized trees, not the dwarfs and semi-dwarfs so common today. I think we talked about that um, out of uh, the. We did, yeah. D. So, yeah. After a few years of dog and shotgun pr- protection to scare away deers, so that the young trees would have a chance to start to grow, they were left unprotected, and deer did the lower pruning by uh, browsing the bur- lowest branches to about five feet off the ground. So. See, now you're just using nature to do its job for it. It, it, This is all just, how can we do things without putting in any work? Um, Yeah, then you can eat eat the deer later. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, return a surplus. I get deer. (laughs) Uh, In the spring, old Mr. Flint's cow-calf pairs would graze in the orchard, eating last autumn's fallen leaves, close-cropping the fresh green grass and giving the whole orchard a shot of fertilizer. Huh. Weird, right? The cattle were then rotated out of the orchard, Uh, This actually was key to the old-timers' apple scab control program. Apple leaves from the previous year infected with a scab lesion would lie on the orchard floor, waiting until the conditions were ripe to multiply and spread. When the proper amount of heat and moisture occurred, the scab spore case would burst open when struck by a raindrop. The spores would then splash upward, finding a low-hanging apple bud just opening to land upon and infect. In the spring, having cattle eat the fallen leaves that had fallen the previous fall, A significant portion of potential infections were eliminated by raising the lowest branches up to a five-foot height using the free and abundant pruning services provided by the deer. The likelihood of any scab spores from fallen leaves finding a young, growing apple tip nearby would be significantly lowered. In addition to this type of plant health management, restoration agriculture systems promote adding a dense understory of marketable plants developed to also act as spore catchers. Um... And it gets really interesting he talks about like uh, how back then um you actually wouldn't be able to buy fresh cider like you basically within days uh, it would begin to ferment so the actually the hard cider wasn't a thing until recently um because back then cider was cider it was alcoholic um so there's all, all cider was
3: alcoholic back then.
1: All cider was alcoholic back then because there was no way to preserve the juice. Yeah, we didn't. Have, oh, I guess that know, makes sense. Yeah. yeah, we didn't have yeah. all the uh preservatives and stuff.
3: Huh.
1: Um. Actually, I'll just keep reading because it's really interesting. Um, old time brewers would wait in the fall until around fifty percent of the fruit crop fell to the ground. Oh, this is actually really interesting right here. So fifty percent of the fruit crop fell to the ground. The first. Apple fruit to fall from the tree are the ones that are the most significantly damaged by pest or disease. Once half the fruit was on the ground, the remaining crop hanging on the tree was harvested. One of the responsibilities of the picker was to inspect each apple as it was harvested. If there was evidence of insect damage, the picker would simply toss the apple to the ground. This negated, for the most part, having to have a packing shed with conveyor belts and sorting tables to separate the good from the bad. In those days, grading was done by human beings as the fruit was picked and only the best went to the picking bucket. Back in the old days the majority of the fruit was pressed. Okay, so here's the cider stuff. Apples for home use or for fresh market sales were selected out of the stream of sound fruit, yeah, sound fruit during the pressing process. Um remember that prior to the 20th century refrigeration did not exist at most apple orchards. The only time that anybody ever got to drink fresh apple cider was when it was coming off the press. Some was stored in the spring house, but its life as sweet apple cider, the non-alcoholic version, was measured in days. Most Hmm. freshly squeezed apple juice was fermented. Apple juice fermented with oxygen quickly becomes infected with acetobacteria. And actually, this is what happened to the cherry mead that I made that actually got infected with acetobacteria and turned to cherry vinegar. So he's talking about apple cider vinegar now. This is what happened to my my cherry vinegar that I ended up saying, well, that's not, you know, going back to return of surplus, this is not bad mead, this is now barbecue sauce.
3: Oh, that's right, yeah, I remember that. Exactly. Huh. So, uh,
1: uh, the... That's
0: pretty good barbecue sauce, too.
1: Oh, I know, right? So the yeah. acetobacteria lives in the gut of fruit flies. It proliferates in the presence of oxygen and eventually turns the fresh juice into vinegar. This was perfect for the days before before refrigeration because vinegar was used to pickle everything from green beans to beets. So see, how uh, just everything has a use. The majority of apple juice went toward making cider, the alcoholic version. To the whole world, except for the United States and Canada, because we forced them to, cider is fermented apple juice, the alcoholic one. Um, alcoholic apple cider was the North American drink in colonial times, starting from the day the first European settlers harvested the first apple. Hard cider, as the alcoholic version is popularly called these days, was a great gift to humankind, it was shelf stable almost indefinitely, and it lightened the spirit in an era of barely mechanized subsistence agriculture. As soon as the apples were off the tree, the orchardist would then release the hogs to eat the ones on the ground, and this is called hogging down your orchard. Imagine the joy of deliriously happy pigs eating and harvesting tons of apples, and remember that these pigs are removing additional pest and disease larvae and spores from the orchard system before being turned into bacon and chops. Pork chops are definitely my favorite form of orchard pest management. Hmm. um and i actually i've got a guy that i work with who's talking about by next february he's actually getting hogs like he's in the process of getting a farm started um and he was talking about yeah i'm gonna finish them on apples and i'm like i just read about that in my book and i told him i was like yeah i've been reading about that exact thing in uh restoration agriculture so i really hope the fact that i brought it up means that he's going to be looking it up on his own time later um because where, that's where does he my, live he's in my town he works with me oh, oh okay yeah, so that's why I'm like, dude. Like, if you, yeah, if 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 you get into this, like, so you've got apple production, and then you're gonna you're going to finish your hogs on apples, like you're doing the thing, dude. And I told him I was like, uh, there's also this thing I guess that's really popular in like France and Spain, which is uh, finishing them on hazelnuts. And there's actually a specific name for the meat, and I forget what it's called, but that's like a very like unique high dollar thing if you get pork finished on hazel. Huh. So, um, I was telling him about that because I thought it was really interesting. But uh, oh, and actually, the next section of this is hazelnuts. So he's actually going through talking about the types of plants that grow in an oak savanna, which is like the primary um, thing that grows in North America. Yeah, yeah, and and that's this is where he's going is like okay, look, here's like your basic starting place of of what species to grow in this in this environment, since this is where we're at. Um, So that's the Apple stuff. Uh, I've got the Saskatchewan story, which I think I told you my recollection of it, which is on page 109. Uh, And this kind of gets into government funny stuff. But this is a short story. (laughs) Several years ago, I was invited to speak in an agroforestry conference in Saskatchewan, where the premier of the province was the keynote speaker. In uh, his presentation, he spoke of the need to plant millions of acres of forest as a way to create a heretofore non-existent natural resource. My initial excitement over the idea of Saskatchewan's politicians committing to planting millions of acres of trees began to fade as the premier started to explain. In his address, he outlined how the province was going to give millions of dollars to large multinational corporations, not to actually plant the trees, but to develop the technology to burn whole trees, to create laboratories that would produce genetically engineered hybrid poplars and willows that would be resistant to herbicides and eventually for the machinery to mechanically plant monocrops of hybrid poplars, destined also to be machine-harvested and burned whole in retrofitted coal-fired power plants. Saskatchewan's double-digit employment rate at the time was mentioned several times. But nowhere did the premier actually mention hiring anybody but a few dozen well-paid engineers and lobbyists. So yeah, that was one paragraph that I just thought was fun to bring
0: up. Um,
1: he's got a, he's got some really good stuff in the B section. I won't I won't go there because I've been talking all this time about you know uh, biological selection and how that uh, how how like antibiotics and all of that have really affected. The problems that we're seeing today and how that kind of plays into the modern thing. Um, the B, the B chapter. I think if you're if you're gonna read one chapter out of this book, just read that one and you'll get the point of the book. Um. Oh, and here's here's something interesting. Uh. So I was just reading this today because I picked it up right before to get in the in the mood for this. Page two fourteen.
4: Okay. Here. Um. So
1: now he's talking about how in drier regions, uh, there were vast areas of savannas that were grazed by bison for thousands of years and then cattle by European settlers that have been abandoned in recent years. Without regular grazing for periodic fires, underbrush has grown up in these former grasslands, uh, much of it regeneration of the oak and hickory overstory. As the shade of these sites has increased, the once abundant grasses have disappeared and are and an overabundance of trees has developed. The sites being naturally droughty are not able to support so many trees per acre and the trees go poorly and slowly. They become increasingly stressed and in extremely hot and dry summer summers like the summer of 2011 entire sections of forest have died all at once. So um, I wanted to bring this oh, up. That's actually... find actually interesting is that yeah. this is contributing to the Californian wildfires. Well,
3: there's that also, but also if you go out to uh, the part of Texas down by, um, well, it's, it's sort of in uh, Western Hill Country. There are just, and I, and I remember wondering about this when we were driving through, going like, why is it like this? And it, it's just tons and tons of dead shrub forests. Yeah. And, and I wonder if that's because that, that all used to be grassland. Yeah, uh, yeah they just let it go. It's abandoned. Yeah, because it's like – and it's, it's so bizarre to see it too because you're, you're driving through it. You're like, "Why? how on earth is there this much dead forest?
1: So here's something interesting about that is this kind of gets into our conversation. So not only do I think that this is contributing to the Californian situation with the, with the fires.
3: Yeah. Oh, for sure but, it is. I, I was, yeah. They used to – I know that prior to uh, white people, there was buffalo everywhere there, but also um, – Yeah, it was Grass. There was, um, they also, the the Indians would do controlled burns all the time. And, uh, I mean, we learned that in school where they were like, oh, they were so wise. They would do controlled burns and eat acorns. Right. And and they, you know, (laughs) in a lot of ways they were. Um, and then, and then you're like, okay, but the people who are teaching me that these people are so wise refuse to do controlled burns.
1: Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um. And and that was something that that Shepherd brings up, like as the, one of the reasons why they're so covered in trees now that are they're dry and scraggly and not doing well, is that these these herds that were grazing, uh, and and like we said, like it's abandoned farmland now, so like we don't even have domesticated herds grazing there now. But what they would do is they would be eating these new sprouts that shot up, and so these trees were cut back only to what would survive there. Um, and now it's just overgrown because all that brushy material isn't being eaten. Uh, and, and that's something that I was talking to you about uh, while we were standing there looking out at the field with the running different animals through. So if you start with cows, they're only going to eat the most delicious grass. You know, uh, <laughs> Salatin calls it Briar's ice cream, right? They're they're just going for the, the tops of the grasses and then they leave everything else. And so we were looking at that brush and I was showing you this is not being rotated. Um but then you run sheep afterward and sheep are the opposite they'll go for the woody crops first cuz they just have a different palate and so they'll eat that stuff and then just you know some stuff that the sheep won't eat that the that you'll have to run goats through to eat but that's how they keep you keep the everything evenly cut back because if you just leave the woody stuff and the grass is getting you know mowed down all the way to the ground like it was on the the ranch that we were standing on all of that woody stuff eventually is just going to keep taking back over mm-hmm. and and what are they going to do they're kind of come come out with their Roundup and their broadleaf and everything else, and and try to try kill it chemically instead of just learning, like, hey, like some somebody's got to eat it, right? If I don't eat yeah. it, it's gonna grow. Somebody's got to eat it.
3: I think it kind of also brings back the point of something else we discussed, which was that might be what may not be attractive to normal land buyers might uh-huh. be attractive for our potential community because it's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's difficult land, but the idea is that you're trying to return it to a productive natural state i guess yep. and if
1: you get it if you get it for cheaper so so check this out one of the things he brings up with the whole cuz this is in a chapter called the transitional strategy and one of those strategies is okay well i got i've got this junk land that i bought for cheap and i can actually make a profit clearing it because i can sell that wood um you know back for the the biomass and everything like even even that um let me see if i can find actually where he says it but like there's you know you, you can make oh or oh paper mills is what he brought up so you can sell it as as paper fodder and now you've cleared the land and you're starting to to redesign and rebuild everything there that can uh you know bring us back into this uh water uh what would you call it as opposed to water draining water uh securing environment you know you you can redesign that landscape and and bring it back to life and production really i mean what it's funny we talk about it like um you know like the world is dead and it's not dead it's just that it's unproductive so we're bringing it into production we're planting things that we want planted and taking away things that just aren't really doing anything for us um because those things will grow anywhere anyways you know
3: yeah, that's one of the things that Jeff Lott talks a little bit about too, where he says, you know, if if left to its own devices, um, you know, nature will become productive on its own, but because of, even if your property, even if your section of property or whatever, it, you're you're what about leaving it to nature? You're not because you don't have herd animals coming through anymore because those are blocked off. It's all right. fenced and all that right. kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. So yep. so he's like he, so and he talks a little bit about that in some of his stuff where he goes like what we're trying to do is mimic nature because nature is not available and as humans because we also are, you know, we're natural creatures as well, um our blessing or whatever as natural animals is to learn what's going on and improve and increase productivity. Yeah. in balance. Yep. Um which we don't always do, but We have that ability.
1: Right. And that's what's funny is uh speaking of all of that, uh, you know, the the two rules, you you gotta keep the two rules in mind. So there's care for the earth and care for people. And if you're not doing both, what you end up with is this idea that, well, nature should be left to its own devices because people are bad. And so that's how you get that like toxic environmentalist idea where you you take the care for people out of it and you just go, no, leave it alone. But if you if you keep care for people in return of surplus in you know from the mechanical side not the ideological side and you just say okay I'm, i'm creating a system that is designed to be as productive as possible and that's good ecologically because you're creating diversity and you're and you're creating habitat for animals and everything else and you're also creating a a product that is producing so much that you can actually feed those around you and and there's such a a holistic view of the world as opposed to a man
0: versus nature view of the world. Um,
4: yeah, I think, I think that's got, a
3: good, a good way to think, think about it. It's a, uh, it makes sense. And that's one of the things that I've always appreciated about Jeff Lawton is I, I oftentimes, uh, I don't know what the right way of saying this is, but like, I just, I find environmentalists very off putting, I guess is the correct way of saying it. Yes. And it, I think a lot of times it prevents me from listening to it. And, but Jeff Lawton is, he's kind of a hippie, but he's also like, no, like what I, I'm trying to have, like a good life, like a good, like that we're pro human, we're not anti human. And this is, this is interesting. I was listening to the guy, one of the founders of Greenpeace earlier today on an interview, and he was, oh, kind of, was that, on- um, Was that Patrick Moore, or was it? I I think it was Patrick Moore. Um, Okay, yeah. He was talking about it a lot. Yeah, he was. He was talking about it where he was like, he's like, it just became so anti-human. Uh, and he's like, that's kind of why I left. It was he was like, the whole point of us starting this was pro-humanity, and that we were, it was we were negatively impacting ourselves by the way that we were treating the environment and he says but then it became that humans were the disease on the planet and he goes not part of the planet and um and i mean the way he attributes it he says i think it's because people are afraid of dying and that if and that like he says like that fear of death if you can if you can kind of control your doom by through through prediction it it's it uh helps alleviate that fear he says, that's what I think is what kind of hijacked the green movement and, and the environmental movement in general is like, that we're killing ourselves and we're in control of that.
1: Right. Right. Because suicide is preferable to be, to just random. Yeah. You know, right. Like the ground falling out from under you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that's interesting. There was an interesting perspective on that. I I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it.
1: Yeah. You know what? Uh, he actually was on, uh, Safe Dean's podcast too. That was Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, it was a great conversation because he had, I mean Safidine brought up some of the like against the grain type things and and I, I don't remember. Some of the things that I've learned from permaculture, uh Safedine brought up to him and they kind of went back and forth on it a little bit and it, it just ended up being really good. I, I can't remember specifically what it was, but uh I'd highly recommend that episode just because I think it was one where um more was allowed to sort sort of Get more thoughts out than usual because usually you just hear about mm-hmm. like Greenpeace, the f- founding in the fall. <laughs> um, yeah, but he he got a little bit more in there that I hadn't heard. So, but yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, so here's here's one I have. This is a section called Dynamics and Change, and it's just comparing like crop rotations. And this is kind of going into what I'm talking about with uh, perennial agriculture being uh, more of a long term thing. So with with like yields and stuff. Okay, so this is, I think, what, two pages? Um, in addition to having little research data available on North American restoration agriculture farms, any yield data that you will find is unfortunately a snapshot in time. When restoration agriculture is first established into abandoned farmland or on a barren site with inadequate soil for ag- annual agriculture, the cropping system will look radically different than it will in 5, 10, or 30 years. Crop rotation in a perennial polyculture also takes on an entirely new meaning here. Crop rotation in an annual cornfield might look something like this. Corn year one, soybeans year two, alfalfa year three to five, and corn year six, and the pattern keeps repeating. It is common for farmers in the United States to grow continuous crops, that is corn or wheat or dot dot dot, year after year after year. For this to work, Chemical fertilizers, insecticides, fungicides, and herbicides applied with precision GPS satellite control take care of fertility, pest, and disease control. Crop rotation for perennial polyculture would follow the natural successional pathway for the region where it is being practiced and could take several thousand years. A simple crop rotation for a restoration agriculture farmer might begin with corn and would travel through the successional pattern by morphing into chestnuts, apples, or plums and cherries, and hazelnuts. By the 30th year, chestnuts would dominate the site, and apples and hazelnuts would become the understory. Livestock would be present through all the years. By year 100 or so, the system would be dominated by chestnuts, and the understory fruits and hazelnuts would be beginning to decline in vigor. Then, quite possibly after a thousand years or so, the whole system would be clear-cut to harvest the high-value timber, and then bulldozed to make way for corn, and the beginning of the next crop rotation. Okay, yeah, it was one page. Good. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what we're doing. It's like, and it's it's that variation over time. So we're not just saying like, okay, just do this instead of that. We're saying,
0: um, oh, where was I going with that?
1: Like, so, so you've got like the monocropping in space, but you've also got the the doing the same thing over and over again versus like a variety of things. So going back to our earlier conversation of like like my job being repetitive for example um i think it's it's more useful for people to be i think it's more natural for people to be in a world where they're constantly you know kind of not just not just in boredom doing the same thing over and over every single day 8 hours a day get their paycheck go home go to the store um if you're designing a system and managing that system you you're kind of more in tune with like what's going on in the world and i think I think there's, like, a natural thing that your body does where it's just, like, more in sync with, with the world around you, you know?
3: Yeah, and that, that kind of plays back to one of the things we mentioned earlier as well with the uh, the Amish—I I don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly the Amish almanac um, predicted, <laughs> like, two years ago that we would be in a year uh, in a two-year cycle of pestilence, which means huh. disease— I don't know if that's true or apocryphal, but like I, I've read that in a couple of different places. I was like, "That's really interesting. That's
1: right. accurate." <laughs> like, how would they know that? Right. You know, they has cycles, man.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like their <laughs> almanac says, "Okay, this is going to be the, the next two years are going to be years of disease." And
1: yeah, and so naturally, you would prepare for that, right?
3: Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, um, I just thought that was interesting. All right, we've got uh, thirty minutes left, and I believe that. Okay, I will Jared, pass this off. Man. Yeah, I think Jared has a prompt. That he wanted to do, so let's spend the last thirty minutes on Jared's prompt.
2: Yeah, this could go on for a long time. Uh, it's it's quite a broad question, but I'll I'll go ahead and introduce it, and we can at least give a few okay. thoughts.
3: Yeah, uh, and we can all we can all continue it next time if we run out of time.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so Pete Quinones was recently being interviewed by Tommy Salmon. Salmons, I can't ever remember which is the right pronunciation. Um, basically talking about. Salmons. Okay. Yeah. Feels so wrong to see that word you <laughs> pronounce the L. <laughs> uh, basically, just rather than trying to work toward an anarchist society, it'd be more important to develop an anarchist culture. And so my prompt was just to like see what what you guys thought about what sort of values an anarchist culture would require and what what
0: values would have to be kept out like basically, you know, also what, what should be encouraged, discouraged things of that sort.
3: Yeah. I, 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 listened to that, uh, that episode too. And actually we talked a little bit about this around the fire at, uh, when we went down to Fredericksburg, Cody. Nice. Um, okay. <laughs> not, not specifically on that, but like, uh, I mean, there are, I am, I'm probably, I wouldn't say I'm the most conservative person cause I do have a lot of stuff that it like, will randomly not be related to like psychedelics. Like that's (laughs) one thing where it's like, I'm very, very conservative and stuff. And then there'll be like these random things where I'm like, no, I'm really into this also. But like, but I, and, and I think it's, I think there is, you know, they say that, um, that, uh, the way that your brain functions is different between being liberal, libertarian, or conservative. And I think that my brain functions like a conservative, um, there are things that I just are unacceptable to me, and that's just the way it is. And and I, I think those would be... But I think this is one of the reasons why I kind of arrived at the idea of doing my own intentional community with the values that I think are good and would cause it to uh, last for a long time, but making a white paper for other people to do the same thing, however they wanted to do it, Uh, is kind of the way I want to do it because I don't want to tell anybody not to do something. Right. Uh, That's, I guess, what the libertarian side or whatever, but I am, like, I do have very strong feelings about what is correct or what is the right way uh, on a lot of stuff. Um, And there are lots of libertarians who have lifestyle choices that I really don't agree with, and they, they tend to have, they tend to revolve around, like, Sexual relationships, um, like not the quote unquote non-monogamy, which I think is a, a bullshit term, but it just basically means that you're you can't commit to somebody, in my opinion. But like things like that, like that to me is inappropriate and w- should not be allowed in Jacob's Childeberg Town. But if some town nearby and they're just swingers or whatever, that's their choice. They can do that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know, use violence against them to stop it or anything. But Um, there's things like that, that I think are just poison for a community as much as people say that they can, that they can live those lifestyles and that, 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 that makes them happy and stuff. It's not true. Um, that it usually, I would say 99% of the time erupts into some sort of extreme drama that is destructive to people that are not even involved. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, so there's things like that, that like, I just think that, no, this is, this is just, it's not appropriate. It's not acceptable. And, um, you know, not in my county as I, uh, <laughs> right, right. So this is my, this is, yeah. this is where I
1: jump off from that. Cause I had this thought uh, on my own and then, and it's really connecting to me with what you just said is that, uh, I, I don't think I have a particular value other than that. Like I'm going to sound like a crazy, like isolationist conservative. When I say this, even though I'm not, uh, is that I think the way you solve this issue is you say, okay, find people you like, find your in group. And choose to prefer them over the, you know, uh, and and this is, this is going to sound like heresy because Mises said that, that the, the way you get like this global economy, the way you get, um, you know, really strong economy is with, uh, because money introduces this ability to have non-personal trade. Mm -hmm. And. Mm-hmm. I would actually say that, like, while that's great for imp- imports and exports, and you know, if you need something that you don't have, I get it. But here's my thing, and this is more from a a value standpoint than an economic standpoint, which is to say that you should prefer to interact with your in group, whoever that is. And yeah. so, when I choose to go to Texas and do this Childerburg Town thing, and if this is, you know, and I I fully like, I'm on board with the idea that like. It was your idea. You're going to be kind of one of these guys that makes up, you know, like that episode I had talking about rules. What, what, what are the rules? I don't want to enforce anything, but I think if we just write down somewhere, hey, this is kind of the 10 things that we care about here. People can look at that and they won't be screwed up about it when like they're not going to move here and then find out. You know what I mean? They're going to find they're going to know as soon as they walk in to visit. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is yeah. I I just want people to find their in-group, interact with it, and if they need something, it's okay to interact with other groups, but like in the, like I was saying, if if we have a hundred people and, and two of them are farmers, and we're producing food for ourselves, I don't need to buy wheat from Nebraska when I live in Texas. Does that make sense? And so, yeah. like, yeah. I don't need to... Like, it's... there. There are things that we can do that with, like technology-wise and all that, and we can ship around the world, but I don't think it's right that people there are people in parts of the world that do not make any of their own food uh the for example uh the el salvadoran economy is what percent 30 40 percent remittances from the u.s just people who came to the u.s to get a job and then send money home to their family okay that's screwed up they should be able to produce their own food well you know what i mean This
3: is sort of the same thing with uh, Yemen that they used to be sorghum producers. And, yes, and then they got all those loans to become coffee producers, and then they blew it all up. So
2: yeah, like, exactly. The same thing that happened with Colombia as well.
1: Yeah, in Cuba, oh, yeah. I think is happening right now, especially with the embargo. And that's why I'm saying is like, okay, whatever happens, like, and now we're talking COVID because we're talking about supply chain issues and we're talking yeah. about shortages and, in you know, business closing and, um, you know, I can tell you right now, I actually. Okay, this is the conversation I wanted to have with you guys. I'm going to just put a picture in Discord right now um that I took at work to show you what my oh, boss real. told me, what my boss told me in a meeting, which is, uh, we're screwed. Like it's coming down. <laughs> Look how empty these racks are, and it's right before the holiday season. Holy uh, something's shit. happening. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Look how empty wow. that is. I was walking down that aisle and I said, Oh, I gotta show you guys this. Okay? Um, it is right before the holiday season. We are working 14 hour days right now. It's not even to that point yet. We shouldn't be doing this until like next next month, month after. Like it's usually like no mid-November when this happens because we're talking about like getting ready for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. We're doing 14-hour days. They're talking about considering putting order holds and shipping staples only for a few weeks until things get straightened out. We are Almost a, an entire day behind on shipping, like, and I'm I'm in food right now, so I can tell you this is why this matters to me because I'm looking at these racks and I'm going, what the hell? We are and, so tied and, in. I mean, also... and this is the power dynamic. We are so yeah. tied into big ag and and this global economy. And I'm going to sound like such a communist and such a conservative <laughs> isolationist at the same time. The global economy is designed so that they can turn off the water whenever they like. Okay, if the FBI thinks that you're up to something, they can shut off your power right now. What are you going to do about that? Do you have backup? Do you even have a candle in your house? Do you store flashlights (laughs) and batteries? Prepper, right? I am a prepper. Okay, restoration agriculture.
3: I got some batteries, but I think that's what
1: I did. (laughs) Right. So restoration (laughs) agriculture is my prepping for a situation in which Walmart no longer has bread.
3: Well right. have you noticed have you also noticed uh, and I didn't know this until somebody posted on Twitter, the amount of so because there isn't there's not a food shortage, it's a shipping shortage or it's like it's a processing it, issue. Yeah,
1: well it's it's process and it's manufacturing yeah. because there are certain things that they're they're not getting and there's also the labor issue. The right. labor shortage is up the up the line because you've got yeah the higher up the chain you go, the more those people think that they can lay their workers off where and, and keep them home for you know COVID six. Time or whatever. Yeah, it, at my level, it's like, oh hell no, we got to get this out. We got to get this stuff out the door, right? They're not giving well, us this another is, two weeks of vacation for, for this is for a, the weird.
3: Yeah, the weird thing that but, uh, uh, chain they do. The weird thing that uh, has been showing up on Twitter, and I wouldn't and verified this just by going to Craigslist. There's like tons of cows for sale on Craigslist with what? a butcher with a butcher hookup. So like they're Wait, like. What? We're going to sell this. It's this amount of money. Oh, that processing costs. Yeah, yeah. and and, but it's included. So they'll be like, "This is what it costs." We'll hook you up with butcher to get this done. Yeah, Um, because they because they can't they can't get they can't get off the farm, and they they have to make their bills, and so they're like, "Shit!" Like we've got to. We've got to get these processed because we—that's how we do (laughs) cows. Like that's what we do. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's it's wild. Like that they're selling them on things like Craigslist now, where they're like, "Look, we're going to hook you up with a butcher. Uh, We can do this in quarters. We can do this. We can we can even do you know we'll process the entire thing for you."
1: Well, see, here's what's this is where this is where Darby Simpsons thing gets in because he actually does a, a meet CSA where they go, okay, look. You pay for it now, which cash flows us for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And we will raise that cow and get it butchered for you. And here's what's extra cool. On the order form, you can specify, like, thickness on everything, how much ground, how much whatever, roast, uh, whatever it is, cuts. uh, and, and so they're doing the same thing, but they're not doing it as a last ditch. They've been doing this for a decade, right? This yeah. is their, their plan. And I'm just like, that shows how right he is on what he's doing. And I really need to keep... F- listening to that podcast because i'm still in like 2016 2017
3: well this is and this kind of <laughs> it is like, going yeah i mean this sort of kind of goes back to the values thing um and that is so localism as a value i think is uh it's something that's taught and i think it's something that we did not grow up with in a lot of ways um because of the sort of international economy and global... Which, you know, people like Alex Jones has been, you know, warning about forever is globalization, <laughs> the new world right. order, and all that sort of stuff. And, yep. well, and actually they talk about it a lot in that book, Anti-Fragile, as well. Um, uh, who wrote that? Uh, Anti-Fragile. I yeah, know, I've heard that. Anti-Fragile. Um, I mean, it's 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 not specifically about this. It's about a lot of things, mm-hmm. but... Kind of in one of the things is like that these systems are, they're not strong. And, and, you know, they talk about this in Strong Towns and on, um, which is one of the podcasts I like a lot, and also on uh, uh, the Kunstler cast, where Kunstler has been recommending for 20 years, move into a small town and and build your small town. Or, and like strengthen it because the issue is that with these very like it doesn't make sense. Tim Poole talks about this on his show all the time. It doesn't make sense. that They chop trees down in Canada, ship the wood to China to be processed and turned into skateboards and then ship it to California to be pressed into or put the logos and stuff on it. Yeah. And then shipped out some of them back to China, some of them all over the country. And, it doesn't make sense intuitively. It makes sense why it's happening because of the Federal Reserve System. But um and, and in certain cases it, it where you'd be like, oh it doesn't make sense that you know pineapples are being shipped from Hawaii to California. Well it it does because pineapples don't grow in California very well. So there's certain <laughs> things there's certain things where yes, you do need to ship them long distances, and there are certain things where you have an absolute advantage or a comparative advantage. But those, all of those advantages are so distorted right now.
1: Well, and this is what you were talking about with the local fruit. A lot of those fruits, like pawpaw, that was mentioned in restoration yeah. agriculture about being totally underutilized. People don't eat these things because yeah. they're not well-known. They well, they're not shelf-stable, yeah, and they're not on store shelves for that, that no, reason. Yeah. So, yeah, well, it, it's funny about you're saying, hey, let's find out what our comparative advantage is and figure out what grows here. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and you know what's funny about that is, and if I is, want
1: pineapples, I can order them. But you yeah. know,
3: nobody, nobody in my family had ever heard of. We, you know, we're Americans. How the hell do we not know about pawpaws? Like, it's they they grow all over the place in America. And
1: I didn't know what muscadines yeah. were until Cotton brought them up to make a meat out of them. And I had no I idea didn't what know about were. until
2: they found them growing in my backyard.
1: Yeah, then you go, <laughs> what are these? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. You're like, wait, are wait, these and grapes?
3: You know, and you know what's funny about that too is like, there's so much. Like, I was out visiting my buddy in Illinois. There are so many things that are common foods to us, and we don't know what they look like. Yeah. like in, and so, like oh, we yeah. were, in, we were in his backyard, and there was some sort of tree that had a bunch of fruit all over it. And I was like, "What is this thing?" And he's like, "I don't know." And and like, so we're like picking at it, like we pull one of the fruits off, and like slice it open and smell it. And I'm like, "It smells kind of like citrusy, like an orange or something." I'm not sure what this is. And we taste it; it's terrible tasting. Uh, I was like, well, let's just chop it open all the way. It was a walnut. Oh, yeah. And I was yeah. like, I have, I've actually never seen a walnut fruit, ever. And yeah. I, I was like, <laughs> blown away by it. I was like, whoa. Right. <laughs> like, this is, what, this is what a walnut looks like? But, it's, but it kind of like was one of those things that sort of you know, opens your eyes where you're like, I don't even know where a lot of this stuff comes from.
1: You want to see yeah. something really alien? You go look up what a cashew looks like before it's cleaned Oh, I, I have seen that Dude, that's, that's, yeah, apparently,
3: apparently the cashew fruit is actually really good. It's just not shelf stable, so they don't ship out
1: right. Well, um, yeah something about like there. the oils are like really acidic or something. So they actually like the the I guess the majority of cashews in India that are like is where they process them. and uh, they they have like crazy health problems, like the there's some acids in the in the shell, I guess. Weird. um yeah it's weird like there, there's something about there was some big thing about like cashew production being like inhumane or something like look that up i, know, I don't, I I don't remember they make, all
3: a, uh, they make a type of alcohol out of it um
1: oh really yeah but
3: it's but it, it goes bad real fast so
1: it's, dude, there was a guy at a farmer's market uh i was living up when i i'll, I'll say i used to live in lawrence because i don't live there anymore uh kansas uh real frou-frou college town um but there was so at the farmer's market there was a guy selling vegan cheese dip and it was fermented cashew oh, it was not good i, mean, was, I, I liked no? it for all the five seconds and then it got really weird
3: oh it huh. was real weird but that but that kind of like to sort of bring a little bit back to the the prompt yeah um yeah is, <laughs> i think that's that's sort of a value that is taught is to value things that are local you know how like people are like mm-hmm. oh this purse is so much better because it's from france or wherever um there needs to be sort of that a promotion of that culture that this is this is better just because it's from here. Yeah, like it's it's because yep. we. Cause I know the guy who made. The thing is like uh, beer is kind of like that actually, which well, is interesting. The like, culture of beer is is yes, very it's, much. You know, it's local, anytime. so it, it's just better because it's local.
1: Yeah, well, and you look at like all of our all of our friends that are starting business ventures and everything else. Like I'm way more willing to buy overpriced stuff from my friends than I am from. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying they're overpriced but like, you know, when you're starting out or when you have like a, a lot of costs involved, like there's a price that you have to charge for it and it is artisanal and it is rare and it's right. your friend. So like you're willing to pay for that and and I think that's really important. Um yeah, I can get stuff cheaper at Walmart and it sucks because we're kind of forced into this idea, this this Walmart idea or grocery shopping idea where it's like I'm being yeah. robbed through inflation and everything else through monetary policy. To yeah, the point you're, that you're, I have to buy cheap.
3: Yeah, because yeah. I mean, well, you're also you're already paying for it to some degree because you're subsidizing it. So, like, that, yeah. So that's like that's another issue is where it's kind of like, yeah, you're forced to. to it's hard. It, it is hard, and I think that's kind of one of the things that. Um, and then another kind of thing to promote in the culture as much as possible is, um, I'm not sure the way to say it is. Uh, Basically, you know you know how we were just talking about how you can't process your own meat because of all these stupid laws? Yeah. Not paying attention to those laws is basically that's the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, <laughs> yeah. and that's what I that's mean when I say interact with your
1: in-group because yeah. even down to that level is like, look, you and I can learn how to butcher a cow together and we can do this thing and get it done yeah. and nobody needs to know. We can just do it in our garage one day. I didn't pay no. taxes. Well, oh. I technically I didn't pay my buddy to fix my car, but if I had, I wouldn't have paid taxes on it. You know what I mean? There would have been no sales tax yeah. on so paying my buddy to help me fix this, fix my car.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think just interacting within a community like this, if you can keep things tight lip enough, yes. I mean your your cost of living goes down by say thirty percent just right off the yeah. bat. Yeah. By well, avoiding that, all the
3: regulations and taxes so, and whatever so that's else, like my... just because
2: you're doing things directly
3: with the guy. Yep. Yeah, yep. and and the culture of Bitcoin, I think, will help with that as well. So that'll
1: that'll be. I'll I'll, sure. I'll make it three rules. Then, like my final say, this is what I think: three rules, sound money, snitches get stitches, and <laughs> uh, you know, prefer local, period, and yeah. and not just local, but your in group specifically.
3: Yeah, and the thing that'll too is it. is that like a lot of the stuff that that I would say I don't like, from a conservative perspective, I think a lot of that stuff is. The symptom of low time preference, or or of high time, wait, high time preference. Yeah, high time, high time, high so time the, preference the bad stuff
1: is high. Yeah,
3: high, yeah, high, yeah. So I think it's a symptom of high time <laughs> preference because, right. and 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 that is sort of the wider culture of high time preference. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of also a lot of that stuff sort of takes care of itself. Uh, and I think also a strong community, it it, it morally polices itself, uh, yep. because because. I mean, for anybody who's had a, a group of friends in their 20s with women involved, one couple breaking up or one couple like cheating on the other one with somebody else in the group just destroys the group. And, wow. and but And those groups will, especially people who are in the group and have experienced that elsewhere, will police the shit out of that.
1: That reminds me of an episode of How I Met Your Mother where they just pointed it out. Somebody sits down at the table and she's like, wait. Because she's talking to Robin Barney and what's his name, t- uh, Ted. And she's like, wait, so you've all slept with each other? That's really unhealthy. And so you basically yeah. realize, like, I've been watching a TV show series about people with a really, really bad... Uh... I don't want
3: to say habits.
0: Well, yeah, I got yeah, yeah, bad morals. It's, yeah,
3: yeah it's like it, it is. That. It's, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's, it is. It's, it's, uh, it, it also, it, it creates... You can do it on t v because it's t v but it creates right. a it creates a community poison that is i mean it it that that type of thing not and not not only that I mean like that sort of stuff it destroys churches it uh it can wreck small towns there i mean it, i I've seen this in my own churches like growing up, like just weird not not even people sleeping with other people, but just like small moral missteps that then make and you know what? It actually, it is, and we have talked about this on the show too. It's it's trust is the issue. Is it is mm-hmm. it's difficult to build trust with people, but it's very very easy to destroy trust. Um, yeah. And so, and that's something that. But I do think Sound Money kind of takes care of a lot of that, and also uh, having to do business on reputation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, absolutely. It, it kind of it takes care of itself. So I think a lot of and and you see this in reflected in intentional communities that already exist uh you look at silo which has existed for a hundred years and has although they are i would say they're morally righteous in a lot of ways uh, it's a little bit different because they're quakers and quakers do have sort of um slightly different uh moral perspective on certain things but there is it is very community oriented and stuff but it's not like commune-oriented, whereas not too far away from CeeLo, you have the free love community, and they're much more communist, sort of, mm-hmm. and their community sucks, and it can, and, <laughs> it's, and it's falling apart, they live in shacks, like, they're dirty, the kids are disgusting, like, they're covered in filth, and stuff like that, and they're not that far away from each other. Yeah. Um, and you see that, like, it, it, it's, a, it's the difference between uh, trust and respect, and ownership and clear, yeah, boundaries. I think maybe that might be another well, way. Well,
1: it's ownership because it's you're willing yeah. to take care of things if they're yours, right? Like if if it's right. not yours, you just leave it to to rot, basically. So, um, yeah. hey, is that anti-fragile book, "Things That Gain from Disorder" by Nassim Taleb? Uh, I think it is. Okay, sure. just look it up. I,
3: I, have, um, I have. I was have looking it.
1: it up, and there's there's a couple. There's like some self help book here too. So. Yeah, it's it's actually it's
3: really a very interesting book. There's some yeah. stuff that I I don't agree with things it, about but, um, things about Machine
1: Taleb that I don't like, but um yeah, I you know I appreciate some of the things that he's on about. Um yeah, so I guess that's part of a series too. Oh, I did not. Um, yeah, it's book three of five, and there's like a box you can buy actually.
3: Oh, that's weird. I've only read this one. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. For, huh? uh, it's called Incerto, uh, Fooled by randomness. The Black Swan. The Bed of Procrustes, anti-fragile, and Skin in the Game. Skin in the Game is one that's been oh, on my list uh, for a very long time.
3: I, I might Actually. have, I might have also read Skin in the Game. Anti-fragile, yeah. really interesting, because um, it was written, I think, ten years ago or something like that. And yeah. it, and it does.
1: Talk- I, I guess back when he, I liked him.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, he talks about a lot of stuff that is that kind of has come to fruition now, like the like yeah. supply chains and things like that, where it's just like a lot of this stuff is not set up correctly or it's not set up to be sustainable it's um it's it's a very high risk environment uh and in an inflationary economy that sort of it feels like it makes sense kind of or like the signals that you're receiving from the market because it's manipulated are that you want to set it up this way but it's just one small thing and kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this this is sort of like the uh the china situation and also what happened with uh, Lehman Brothers here in the United States is you get one company to make a serious error, and it destroys everything. Yep. Um, and it's, it, the system is very fragile, which is probably what he was writing this book about.
1: Yep. It was probably about that, that 2008. And you know, we can talk monopoly all day, but I think that's even a problem with, like, the division of labor is that, like, I think people take it too far just conceptually. Uh, they take it too far and they say, okay, well, so there's one guy who's good at this, so I'm going to be good at this other thing. Well, it's like, no, we still need to have people competing on each everything, right? So, like, right. it goes so far that they almost are, when, when you take division of labor too far, you end up supporting Monopoly because everything is done by a different person. And that yeah. creates, it's so, like, permaculture, this is where, like, the making fun of permaculture thing comes back in, where it's like, okay, so you, you can't make fun of redundancy, because redundancy is what keeps the system from failing because if two guys are producing the same thing, if one of them has a crop failure and the other doesn't, you're not out that thing. Right. See what I'm saying? so like, yeah, that, that's you know, just, been one pushing of, back on something that I've been hearing a lot lately and I'm really getting frustrated by it.
3: Yeah, that was one of my, uh, one of my things that, uh, do you, did I ever say, tell you guys the food neighborhood idea that I had? where you, you, could use, you could use GIS and basically you wouldn't even have to say who you were. You could just say, hey, I'm growing this and I usually have a, sur- a surplus. So if you're interested in this, like... You can oh, yeah. Yeah, then Don't you can like Make of, an app
1: for it kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And then you can kind of
3: coordinate with your neighborhood where you're like, well, I know these people are growing these things and it doesn't grow well in my yard. Um, right. But tomatoes grow really well in my yard. Like, I can't grow... Like, you know what? I've always actually had a really hard time growing for unknown reasons. Swiss chard. It's probably because oh, I don't really? like it. Yeah, it's probably because I don't like it. So, <laughs> so, and, and, and it so, you don't take care of it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it is. is like it's right. like. Uh, but also, I don't really like tomatoes, but I always do really well with tomatoes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I, but this chard is one of the, I think Speargo's favorites, right, isn't it? I yep. I, I, yeah. I never
3: I've never really liked. Uh, I,
1: I, liked I like
3: I like it. Am. I like a chard if it's boiled and then with like a ton of salt.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I would probably. I think I would enjoy it uh, just lightly. What do they call that when you just lightly saute it so it wilts or whatever? Oh, um. Not like completely boiled like canned yeah, spinach. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's called like. Yeah. Uh, There's a word for it. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: But I, yeah. I like I like it like this canned spinach. So it's got to be like yeah. really soft <laughs> and extremely salty.
1: For sure. All right.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but I also am like, I am heavily, heavily addicted to salt. So. Right.
1: Um, yeah. No, one of my favorite things is uh, when you get the mixed greens, and then it'll have, it'll come with like bacon in it already. And then I throw more bacon in there, like real bacon. Right, yeah. So it's like extra salty <laughs> and fatty. So, but, good. you know,
3: that was actually when you were reading that thing, I was thinking about that too was uh, if you had an orchard, we have such a bad hog problem here.
1: Oh, yeah. You attract like them with the orchard, and then you get yeah, the orange tree yeah, hogs. Just mow, yeah. boom yeah, them down. Just, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. yeah. like you would, I mean, you
3: don't there, there's no limit on hogs here you can kill as many as you oh, want yeah. any season oh and, nice um,
1: so they treat and, hogs like coyotes here
3: oh yeah they're 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 a menace and they're uh and they destroy farms too um but that would be yeah. an interesting oh challenge. yeah they're running around rampant yeah that would be an interesting challenge in in texas is how do you integrate that well it's an invasive species but how do you figure out a way to integrate that into your your food cycle? I, and I think probably the answer is we'd just be eating a ton of
1: pork. Oh yeah, um, well that's the thing. It's like it, this is the yeah, you're trying like, to I'm do I'm something gonna. that wants to live and 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 keep something alive that wants to die. Well, if the pigs are going wild out there, yeah, just eat don't it. just yeah just, eat them. Yeah. Yeah. just yep. eat them. We're
2: gonna need we're gonna need Cody to mess up a lot more meat if that ends up being the case. We're gonna need a lot of barbecue sauce. Yeah. Oh, heck
3: Yeah, <laughs> you don't know no, one of one of the things that I. Uh, that I always feel, and I've—I was introduced to this by my wife—is um, the the limit of pork sausages we have in America. The types of sausage.
1: Oh yeah! Right.
3: Um, and they have they have all of these smoked and cured sausages in Eastern Europe that are so good. I really think they could be a big seller, uh, mm-hmm. and especially mm-hmm. in Texas where you can just harvest these pigs like however you want. And I was thinking that might be, like, a interesting. And, I, and it's something I would actually be interested in because I always I always like making stuff like that. Like, I enjoyed making beer when I made beer, and I've always liked making fermented things. So I was like, yeah. well, maybe, maybe I could learn how to make... Uh, do, like,
1: a variety thing. Well, and I think this Because yeah. what it's sounding like to me is that you don't want to do anything at, like, large production, but if you have something that's, like, a variety of different things that you could do, that yeah. might be your jam, right? You'd be like, okay, well, I've got, like, 12 jam. kinds of sausage, and I've got this, like, homemade beer, and I've got... I don't know. Like, yeah, I think I I I like
3: like to try a lot of stuff, and so I lose interest very quickly in things. But yes, um, I think I I think I would be good at making like. So there's like my favorite one is uh, it's called Moskovskaya, and it's uh, Mm. it's like it's like smoke cured, and it's hard. It's like a it's basically salami, but it's like a really hard salami. It's almost Mm. like it's like a step away from jerky, but with Mm. fat in it, like with like Mm. a lot of pork. It's really good.
1: I want to try that because did you get to try that biltong we had at Jilderberg? Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. It's actually it's oh, similar. Cute. It's
3: it's kind of like the biltong a little bit, but it's yeah. but it's a sausage, so it's but, it's more um, like it's really good. Uh, yeah, they've got and they've got like they have this this world of variety that for whatever reason when you go to the deli here it's like five different types of salami and they're all pretty much the same, and uh, and then like even, and then in there like what we would call baloney, but they would call Doktorskaya. um, doctor's meat, because mm-hmm. I guess, I guess when you were sick in the Soviet Union, they would prescribe to you. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> dude, it
1: probably calms your stomach. Yeah. It probably calms your stomach. They, they get, like when I, I, uh, when I had a dog a few years ago, um, she got sick and, uh, that, that's what they prescribed her was actually uh canned dog food that was very bland.
3: But huh. this was so, stomach,
1: yeah Victoria
3: and it, this works for real. Um, she was a puppy still. Victoria always uh, does this if I ever get like a cold or something is is uh, Dr Skaya and garlic. and it works its it, Oh yeah, well,
1: garlic man. Yeah. I've got I've got a jar of fermented garlic, and I really need to get on actually popping one of those a day because they say that that's amazing for keeping healthy, like keeping yeah. away like regular colds and stuff.
2: Hella antibacterial yeah. and antiviral. Oh, yeah. really yeah. and then
1: oh, and something we also made. So this was recommended by our uh, our friend Melissa, the the elf, the at Small Crimes. Uh, oh, yeah. She's, yeah. she got me into. Uh, they call it honey garlic, and you actually so it's honey, and you crush the garlic first so that the like the inner liquids are kind of exposed and stuff. And what'll happen is that garlic will start fermenting inside the honey. And then the honey will dilute as it so it becomes more of a sauce than a thick honey. That honey is amazing just on toast, but I, I can imagine so many applications for it. And then the garlics yeah. are like candy. It's yeah, that, so I, I good. Think,
3: but I was thinking too, like this could be even like um, you know, depending on how much collapse collapse happens, is that we could have a really robust local uh, what do they call it? A, cot- a cottage industry? What is, what is that called? Is it cottage? A yeah, street. cottage
1: industry. Cottage. Yeah,
3: because you have yeah. like a much you have a much much lower threshold for uh, regulation when you do it that way. Uh, especially in Texas, they have all sorts of exceptions for making food in your house. Oh of, like, yeah,
1: yeah, they do. There's a thing that you can apply for to be considered yeah. a cottage something or other. Yeah,
3: yeah, I remember that. So I was thinking, like at the meadery, you do it sort of like how a winery does it, and you have. The meat available, but then you have what 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 were you guys calling it a charcuterie board? Charcuterie, yeah. Charcuterie, yeah. I've never. Yeah, cheese. I mean, I meant I'm into in, in wine. I had, I had never even like. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah,
1: that's like a classic holiday deal, dude. Thanksgiving, yeah. somebody brings out a charcuterie board, and you're drinking beer and eating salami and cheese.
3: Yeah, we just always call it a meat cheese board.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's a fancy uh, French word. I don't know. Yeah, uh,
3: <laughs> but but uh. I was thinking like that would be kind of a cool thing is like there's going to be a lot of people, they, they'll produce this type of stuff. And, you know, you, and then when people are like, hey, I want to have some sort of snack with my mead, is you figure out what pairs well with it and offer that. Right. And then well, I mean, and it, that, like, it's a good way yeah. to bring business in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that was kind of my whole thing with just the whole permaculture direction that I'm going is I'm saying like, look, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to produce. Enough mead to be just a mead guy, but you know what? I can yeah. do, I can make all of the stuff myself, and in the process, I've also got beef, pork, chicken, you yeah. know, eggs, and 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 other, you know, nuts, and whatever the heck else ends up being on this property. And I think it's gonna be like one the, of the best, like, uh, one of the
3: best, like, uh, breakfast places, probably. dude. Everything, right? Everything's gonna be there, and it's all gonna be fresh and good, like the you'll get you'll get eggs that were
1: picked yeah. up that morning that super morning, fresh, literally Atlanta. yeah yeah put a bed and breakfast on the property and then just yeah. you know hold parties at night with the mead but like it, it and then it's it, it's what they call an estate mead and you say okay the price is higher because it's rare and it was made with this supernatural holistic process that is you know kind of built around it but it's like you know I'm not making hundreds and hundreds of gallons because sh- i just don't think i could do it like i think i can make i mean i could probably do like 100 gallons at a time or something for like like the big staple flavor or whatever like the natural normal one yeah and, and, then, and you know
3: what and if you don't make enough too you could like if we if within the food forest there's uh grapes you can make small amounts of you know quote-unquote bespoke wine or whatever they call them field variety or field wines where it's just whatever grows yeah you just make wine yeah out wild
1: of wine. yeah yeah yeah, well and uh, yeah, you can use everything. I mean it Yeah. And yeah, that's people, that's another thing that. that you can just do ciders too. Like if I get fresh apples
3: yeah.
1: to go with the yeah. mead. Oh yeah. So Yeah, anyway. I mean I think it would be it would
3: just be really productive. But I think that's a good place to put a, a yep. pin in it. Uh, unless they, you guys have anything else you want to say.
1: I think I'm good.
3: No, I think I'm good. All right, Boy. cool uh then i'll tell everybody to stay free and next time we might pick this up because I, I think i'm gonna let this uh thought ruminate what are some other values that and maybe i'll re-listen to that episode because i do remember yeah, being you a know episode. you
1: can even post that on the Childerberg account and say hey comment with like something that you think is a oh, like a good yeah, yeah just really let's, good let's see what people say I want, i'm curious about that
0: yeah
3: okay so, uh yeah great idea all right guys all right man cheers thanks have a good day
0: peace stay free <laughs>